Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, today we're debating Flat Earth versus Globe Earth and we are starting right now with Iron Horse's opening statement. Thanks so much for being with us, Iron Horse. The floor is all yours. Well, thank you, James. Um, I wrote a last minute preparation for this and I've got notes all over the place. So I hope you can just bear with me. Um, so here we are, we're on an endeavor upon a quest for truth. And the objective is to eliminate all that is absurd or impossible so that whatever remains, no matter how unlikely, must be the truth. Or as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle expressed through the animatic character Sherlock Holmes, reporting, like detective work, is a process of elimination. It requires that we gather and probe innumerable versions of a story until the one which remains must be the truth. Today I'll present just three main points in my humble endeavour to present nothing but truth, logic and facts, so that the listener may use their own discernment to elucidate that which is fact from fiction. My three main points are thus. One, that the motion of the Earth disputes the possibility of the Moon, which therefore negates all possibility of the heliocentric philosophical belief. The second is that gravity itself is not possible without mass, and therefore mass itself cannot exist without gravity. And third, that the very idea of anything dropping 9.8 metres per second squared as the very definition of gravity must automatically be dismissed as absolute absurdity if we're to assume gravity, rotation and orbit are even remotely possible in order to even begin accepting the spinning space ball in the first place. It's quite obvious that even the most heavily indoctrinated helioist will automatically begin to tune out as soon as we start mentioning the very large numbers that any casual inquirer presents to them, despite those very figures being the very foundation that their belief rests upon. The irony is, the only defence is to say, big numbers scare you, or you just simply lack the mental capacity to understand them. So if that's said, let's hold their feet to the fire. Point one, the motion of the Earth negates the possibility of the moon as it is currently understood. The stationary planar Earth simply claims that whatever the moon may be, we assume zero motion of the Earth and we observe the moon rotating around above us, taking approximately 50 minutes per rotation longer than the sun, doing basically the same thing. The spinning spaceball believer, however, has to assert that the moon is in fact going 2,280 miles per hour backwards from west to east, while the Earth moves 66,600 miles per hour around the sun. And just as I predicted, every listener is already tuning out, not because we're scared, but because we don't understand big numbers. It's because the very moment we start hearing bullshit, we tune out. The less worldly experience we have, the more inclined to believe bullshit we will be. That's a quote you can put down to me. The less worldly experience we have, the more inclined to believe bullshit we will be. Hence now, why I reduce my argument to something we possibly all understand as a child, like learning to ride a bike and understanding what the sensation of real speed actually feels like. I personally love my push bike. From the first homemade retro with one handbrake to my BMX to my 10 speed, I was way too small to ride with front and rear handbrakes and no such thing as a helmet or safety gear. I had a speedo on that bike 
And the first time I rode down Ragland Hill towards Bathurst, the place of motor racing champions, at 11 years old, I believed Alan Moffat would, would have popped a gasp at keeping up with me as Peter Brock struggled to overtake me as I hit a top speed of 60 kilometres an hour down the hill. Don't matter to me that it was normal street speed through town at the time and the cars were whizzing by at 100 kilometres an hour, or that in my parents' car I could stick my hand out the window and feel it. I'm actually reading the wrong one here. I'll just have to keep going with it. Bloody hell, how did I do that? It is what it is. Uh, so sorry about that. So sorry, I've mixed up my notes as I thought I would. Um, didn't matter there was a normal uh, street speeds going at the time, 60 kilometres an hour, and the cars were whizzing by at 100 kilometres an hour. But in my parents' car, I could stick my hand out the window and feel the wave. Yet here we are about to listen to the same old regurgitated nonsense. We don't feel speed. To use an analogy, let's say I rode my bike at a steady, sedate, 10 kilometres an hour around a parked car, remaining a constant 10 metres from it. I can ride round and round all day, no problem. Now say the owner shows up and starts to drive just five kilometres an hour through the car park. Suddenly I find myself forced to speed up to quickly dash around in front of the vehicle, then immediately apply the brakes to slow down and speed up again as I dash around behind, speed up even more to get back in front again. In other words, I've gone from a simple orbit to a crazy elongated spiralling motion at just five kilometres an hour. Imagine now we hit the streets and start to move a whopping 50 kilometres an hour. Even on a motorbike, I'd be performing absolute ludicrous dangerous stunts if I had a chance of maintaining the same 10 metre distance from the car at all times. Let's say for safety, I decided to stay 50 metres from the car, finding such, a race, <laughs> finding such a racetrack aside, perhaps some deserted salt flat would be required. I'd now be performing even more elaborate feats of extraordinary precision, for as I passed in front of the car, I'd literally have to simultaneously slide sideways before madly turning and literally keep on sliding forwards as the car passed me so I can maintain a constant distance from it. In fact, the further I get from the car, the faster it goes, the more ludicrous the whole concept of a simple orbit becomes. Mark here, like any good indoctrinated helioist, will invoke gravity as the strong invisible tether holding the moon to the earth, as the Earth was more than 100,000 kilometres an hour, chasing the sun, moving a mere 827,202.816 kilometres an hour. Which leads to my second point, that this magical tether called gravity. My Helios buddy here will declare that whilst all these unfathomable speeds of sliding, swirling, twirling and spiralling are carrying on at distances of absolute unfathomable enormity, at the end of the day, it all sticks together due to the attraction of mass. For no other reason than its mass. What's weird is that if, I had no mass in the, if it had no mass in the first place, there would be a no attraction and therefore no mass. Part of my notes. What's weird about this feeling of attraction, however, is that if it had no mass, it won't feel attracted. The helioist is out there spinning and wobbling all its booty, but the gas molecule says, hey, see this tiny little straw in a glass of water? Hell, I'll let this guy put a finger over my tiny little hole and I'll be way more attracted to that than your massive tilted wobbling booty down below. The power of the suck destroys your power of the booty even where your booty power is strongest. All of which leads to point three, which is you must insist the attraction of mass causes all other masses to be attracted towards the big booty at a rate of 9.8 metres per second squared. Let's just say 10 metres per second squared for all the difference of your very big numbers are going to make. 
According to your own figures, the spinning space ball of roughly 40,000 kilometres circumference is rotating once per potato, I mean, once per day at roughly, uh, I had to delete that, 40,000 divided by 24, 1,666,067 divided by 60, 27.78 per minute divided by 60, 0.463 times 1,000 to put in the metres, 463 metres per second. It must be falling sideways to create the illusion of just dropping down at 10 metres per second squared. As crazy as your belief already sounds, to be dropping sideways at a slant some 463 metres per second sideways to create the illusion of falling straight down at just 10 metres per second squared. This Helios here will gleefully shield on behalf of his heliocentric belief that that's not all, folks, but, but, but wait, there's more. The sun itself moves 19,852,868 kilometres per day. So everything creating the illusion of just dropping 10 metres per second automatically knows the directional speed of the Earth rotating this way or that. It automatically knows the difference between orbiting and rotating and doesn't care about the weather. It automatically just knows which direction to slide diagonally this way or that in order to keep up the illusion of just dropping straight down. And if that doesn't blow your mind, just imagine the various speeds and every individual star must be moving to create the illusion from thousands of light years away that they don't even move at all, just for this tiny little insignificant blue dot Earth. Thank you very much for that opening statement. And with that, want to first let you know folks if it's your first time here at modern day debate we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science religion and politics i'm your host james we have a podcast as well if you haven't checked that out you should but also housekeeping stuff for the channel as you can see at the bottom right of your screen modern day debate is also on tiktok we are trying to get to a thousand followers on tiktok the reason is that unlocks the feature of being able to live stream which is a huge deal as that can help us expand this neutral platform of modern day debate all across the internet. So if you have TikTok, I am going to put that link for our TikTok in the top of the chat right now. It's also in the description box. If you'd like to follow us there, that helps us expand our neutral platform. And with that, thanks very much, Mark. The floor is all yours for your opening as well. Thank you so much, James. Um, I'll just share my screen uh, quickly. Uh, just one second. Uh, sorry, just gonna get organized here. And screen two. Crystal clear, we're ready for you. Fantastic, thank you. Um, good morning or evening as the case may be. I am Mark Reed, and I have the pleasure to be debating the negative position on the position um, of is the earth flat. I want to thank James and Modern Day Debate for providing a platform for this debate, my opponent, and also wish to thank you for giving me your time. Um, I'll go through a few things and establish why flat earth simply cannot work with what we observe in the world. These observations are very straightforward, but I challenge you to think about them and how they would actually work on a flat earth as it seems completely incompatible. Uh, today, I'll be challenging my opponent to provide a reasonable rational explanation of how these phenomena work on a flat earth and I'll expect him to explain all of them in detail. So let's begin. 
So first off, circumpolar stars. This is a time lapse of the north circumpolar stars. Notice that um, it's going in an anti-clockwise direction this way, and this will become important later. Um, the person in uh, the UK that took this footage was facing north towards the North Pole. Note that the circumpolar constellations with Polaris at the centre here isn't directly above the viewer. However, since he is in northern UK, Polaris is quite high in the sky. Um, and that was a pretty cool uh, thing that the guys captured. Now, this is the circumpolar stars in the... Uh, did I just switch back? Uh, there we go. This is the circumpolar stars in the uh, southern hemisphere. Note that they're going, uh, when I can get my pointer, my apologies, note that they're going the opposite direction. They're actually going clockwise in the southern hemisphere this way. Um, this was taken in Australia, Coonabarabran in New South Wales. So it's not as close to the South Pole as the last footage from the UK is to the North Pole. Notice that the constellations, which there is no central star, um, is, a, is a lot closer to the horizon than the northern footage. Um, and I will go then. Okay, so this is comparing the three perspectives together, north, south, and equator. At the north and south, we have these orbits sort of high in the sky. And the further we get towards the pole, you get a higher and higher circumpolar constellations in the sky. At the equator, the stars rotate directly overhead, but they are curved to the left and right. Um, and I'll just sort of point that out here and here. And there's a very good reason for that, um, which I will get to. Whoops. Um, so this taken, this photograph was taken from um, Alaska at the Beluga Lake Observatory. Um, this observatory at a higher latitude than the UK, the circumpolar constellations appear yet higher in the sky. So it's much higher. Um, this one was taken by Patrick Cullis at a research station in the Antarctic. Um, the, the beam you see is just a LIDAR. It basically measures weather observations. Uh, it's, a, it's a laser used for atmospheric readings. Um, notice the stars are directly overhead. He's looking up past the building. Now, to address the point of all of this, why is the circumpolar constellations above the uh, directly above the poles at the North and South Pole? But when you get lower, the closer you get to the equator. What is causing this on a flat Earth? Why do, don't the the circumpolar stars have the same height if the Earth is a flat plane. So I'm going to show you what the problem exactly is. Uh, let's, let's zoom down to North America and, and sort of have a look at it. So um, I'll just wait till it gets into here. And this is, this is from America. Um, I'll just lined up. This is from America facing the North Pole. Now, the circumpolar stars, when you look here, are going anti-clockwise um, and, and pretty close to the horizon from, from the USA. Um, but hang on a second. Um, if we move directly towards those circumpolar stars, now this is directly towards it. Uh, is that going? Okay, so... When we get to the equator and, and, and Africa, what we're not seeing is, is the, the circumpolar stars above us. What we're seeing when we look from Africa south is the southern circumpolar stars going in the opposite way, clockwise. 
Why is that? How does that work? How can you move directly towards the circumpolar star, stars from the northern hemisphere and they don't, they just disappear on a flat earth? It doesn't work. Um, where, where did the southern polar stars come from? Why did they move up from behind the horizon? Why can't you see them before if you're on a flat plane? Why is that? Um, now, these constellations um, are, are traveling in the opposite direction clockwise. And let's go south to the Antarctic, just going directly towards those stars, all right, directly towards them. Okay, uh, just wait for a sec for my animation and we will move directly towards them to the Antarctic. Now, keep in mind, the stars... Um, the circumpolar stars are not straight in front of us. You know where they are at the Antarctic? Directly above us. So at the South Pole, we suddenly have the southern circumpolar stars above us. Why? Why do they change that orientation to above us? And I'll get um, Iron Horse to explain exactly why that is. Now, I know why this happens on a... Um, a oh, sorry. My bad. Um, I know why this happens on a um, globe Earth, but I just want to point out, oh God, I just want to point out there's another problem if my thing would work. Sorry, I got to go through this animation again. It doesn't take a second. Um, but keep in mind, um, North America, you see the circumpolar stars going um, anti-clockwise. Um, they're above you. Then you see the southern ones rising from the uh, uh, horizon. Then as you move towards the Antarctic, um, basically they're above you. And, and sorry, I can't seem to skip forward on this. My apologies. Um, I'll just wait for this to... Now I'll zoom out and, and my animation will zoom out. Now, Flat Earth has another problem I'll get Ross to explain. The circumpolar stars in the south are seen by South Africa, Australia, and South America. So South Africa sees them, Australia sees them, and South America sees them. So where are they? And, and why do they seem, are they exactly the same constellations? And if they are in all three places traveling clockwise, why do they not interfere with one another? Why do they not clash with one another? Ross is going to have to explain that as well. So let's find out. How does that work on a globe? Uh, our guy here, and I'll get a pointer to show you, or, or actually a pen will do. Um, a guy here looks north and he can see the north solar circumpolar stars. As he moves north around here, the stars go above him, so they're directly above when he goes around the other side of the Earth, travelling south, those stars here emerge from the horizon. And, and he basically, when you get to the South Pole, Antarctic here, and look north, they're directly above you. Everything works perfectly. And people from South America, Australia and, and Africa all can see exactly the same stars. They're exactly the same and it explains it all perfectly. But we'll get Ross to explain this one on his, his pizza. Um, this is another problem. The, flat, the Earth is uh, 
the flat Earth has the sun on one side or the another. The problem is the light has to reach far enough that it matches the observations. For instance, when the sun is setting in Western Australia, it is rising in Africa. However, on the model that Ross has, the light travels further um, around the sides. Whoops. The light travels further around the sides that way than it does towards the centre. Why? What is the physical properties that stop the light travelling past the centre? It's Taiwan, for instance. Why is Taiwan that is up here? Why aren't they seeing the sun? Why does the light travel so far in one direction but refuse to pass the North Pole? Why is it that the Antarctica gets 24 hours of, of, of light in the summer and not, not in the winter? It, it's completely dark in the winter. We'll get Ross to explain that one for us. Um, so these are lunar eclipses taken all around the world. These are just an example. There are literally millions of these pictures taken by people all over the world. From every vantage, every angle, every elevation, the shadow on the moon is always a curved shadow. There is never a shadow that has a flat edge. Why? If the Earth is always flat, then how is it always curved when viewed from any angle? Why don't we ever see one of the edges of the flat Earth that my opponent claims exists on any lunar eclipse? Why has no one ever in the history of humankind ever seen a flat edge? Um, this is how a lunar eclipse works on a globe model. Take note, this is not to scale. It is just to explain what is happening. If the sun and the moon are rotating above the Earth, then what is a lunar eclipse? Why does the moon have a shadow on it at all? What is causing it? And when a total lunar eclipse occurs, is the sun underneath the Earth? If so, why do the people on the opposite side of the Earth from those who see the eclipse still see the sun? This makes zero sense on a flat Earth model, and I want Ross to explain this. I want a detailed and rational explanation from my opponent as to how this is occurring and what is causing it. Do note also that the moon orbits the, the Earth, so the distance between here and here is always the same, exactly the same, right? So this is important. And it's tidally locked. And what that means is that the moon rotates in a way that it will always have the same side, this side, facing towards the Earth. Um, that's what tidally locked means. It basically means that it's locked in a position where it always faces the Earth. Now, this is important because... Um, we always see the same face of the Earth. We see different phases of the moon, but it's always the same side. Uh, this is important because it goes, like flat Earth goes against what we see from our moon. If the moon's always the same side, if you were looking at it from a flat plane, the distance you would view it on from here to over the other side on an angle would be much longer. Therefore, it should be smaller. And don't get me wrong, the moon has slight variations in size, but the flat Earth cannot, it should be way smaller being over here. But it's not. We see it as roughly the same size. The other problem is that if you've got one side here that you're seeing, you should see that side of the moon, but you don't. On a flat Earth, you shouldn't. You should see that part there but you don't you always see the bottom of the of the on this diagram the face of the the moon that we we again this is another example of how the flat earth model seconds. repeatedly fails to match reality it is it is a broken model that just does not work 
So these are the questions I have for my opponent. He seems to have left. I'd like him to write them down. I expect a detailed answer that explains all of these phenomena, and, and we can go into his explanations. Why does the circumpolar celestial stars rotate in different directions? Why are they directly above when at the south and north pole, yet at the horizon when at the celestial equator? How does light travel from the sun a far greater distance latitudinal than longitudinal? Why does the shadow on a lunar eclipse always appear round, no matter what location or orientation it's viewed in? And how do lunar eclipses work at all? Why does the moon always appear the same size? And why do we always see the same face? You might want to take these, these down, Iron Horse, because you're going to have to answer them. Uh, thank you for listening and giving me your time. I will pass the mic back to James. Thank you, James. Thank you very much for that opening. And a couple of other quick housekeeping things. Folks. I think you're on mute, James. You're on mute, mate. That's right. Let me, I've got a mute on Zoom and then I've got a mute on OBS. So now I'm, I'm free on both. Thanks for that. Want to let you know, folks, if you haven't yet hit that subscribe button, do so now. We have many juicy debates coming up that you don't want to miss. In fact, this is a debate that we've been showing at the bottom right for a while. Let me pull this one up as it's finally got a title. In particular, as you can see, Daniel Hakikachu and Inspiring Philosophy's Mike Jones have agreed to debate. This is going to be a juggernaut of a debate. You don't want to miss it. It's on the controversial topic of whether or not child marriage is acceptable. So you don't want to miss that one, as well as many other topics that the mainstream media doesn't cover. We host them here in our debates. So hit that subscribe button for plenty more juicy debates coming up. With that, we're going to jump into the open conversation. Thank you very much, gentlemen. The floor is all yours. Well, I finished off. I think Iron Horse should uh, start us off, to be fair. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for that, Mark. Um, it was very interesting. You know, I should have set an alarm clock so I knew when to wake up. Um, I basically brought real serious observable facts to the, to the debate, and you brought a bunch of CGI and pretty pictures and all sorts of stuff that aren't exactly how we look at the world at all, um, and you think that you've somehow presented an argument where basically you've just thrown a bunch of questions at me rather than even try to defend your globe. Now, if you're going to defend your globe and say that by looking at the lights in the ceiling, we're going to prove the nature and shape of the floor, you know, you've got a, a pretty big task ahead of you. Um, you basically brought up circumpolar stars. Now, this is one thing I've been asking uh, globers throughout multiple forums for many years now to do this a simple experiment. And that is just simply put two cameras onto a ball. You know, use a globe earth if you want, you know, one of your classroom toy models that you like to use. Put two cameras on it, let's say at 45 degrees, so it's about halfway between the pole and the equator on either side. Align those cameras with some sort of pole star either side of it and spin that ball and show me how you can make star trails. You absolutely cannot do it. The very example of a star trail means if, if you are on the ball with your camera and you're aligned to the north, as the ball is spinning, it is creating this 8,000-mile big loop. And you don't see that in star trails. All you see is the stars themselves moving. And that proves nothing about the shape of the Earth beneath our feet. You feel no motion. We've got sensitive instruments that detect no motion. There is absolutely nothing that has proved motion of the Earth. And looking up at the lights in the ceiling does not prove the motion of the Earth. Now, if you can give me an example where you can put a camera on a ball and align it at a light in the distance and show all the other lights around it also moving in perfect circles 
as it's moving 65 times faster lengthwise, linearly, because we're orbiting the sun. Don't forget the orbit of the sun. It's what negates the star trails in the first place. If you're going 65 times faster one direction and trying to focus on a fixed point in the distance, all the other lights are going to leave lengthy, long star trails. You won't get that from your spinning space ball. Okay, so that was a lot in there. So um, the question, the, the, the information that I gave in graphical form is to sort of help you try and understand it because people like you, the flat earthers, they seem to have trouble thinking in three dimensions. And maybe that's, you know, something about you that, that you know, you grew up with, but you seem to have problems putting these things into perspective. So they're to help you understand how they are. It's like a diagram of an engine. Like you can say, hey, it's a picture of an engine that can't possibly work. An engine still works. And that's and, and what I have presented is the actual observations from real life. I can't bring these observations in because I can't drag the moon and the stars into the room. So this is just a silly tactic to make it sound like, oh, if you put anything on paper, it's not real anymore. You know, that, that's the thing. Get me a real star. Now, if you put a camera on a ball and spin it and have a light there, it, it will spin if it is far enough away. What we're talking about here is parallax. Parallax is important. So basically that means the further away something is, the less it moves. And, and you like to throw out these, these really big numbers, these, oh, 8,000, you know. So what we have to address here, and as far as your opening is concerned where you threw out these massive speed numbers, is that it, the, the Earth's only rotating at 15 degrees per uh, hour. That's the level of the rotation. So the speed doesn't really matter because the there's something called inertial frames of reference. If you're in an inertial frame of reference with a lot of other things, like you're aboard a plane, the reason why you don't get dragged to the back of the plane is because you and the air and everything in the plane is moving at the same uh, momentum all at the same time. And this is a child can understand this. Um, it's the reason why when once you get up to speed in a race car, you, you don't feel the speed anymore. If you've oh, ever been on a high velocity train, you don't feel the speed anymore. The reason why little little Ross and his his you know bike, girl's bike or whatever he had, um, basically the reason why you're feeling the wind is because you are an inertial frame of reference and the air is in a different one. It is stationary and that's why you feel the wind. But you only feel in the same inertial frame of reference acceleration, deceleration and changes in vector or, or changes in vector essentially. So when you move, when you turn or when you go up or down, like a, a jet is travelling really fast, but it's not like yeah. once it's up to speed, you, you, can't, you can't walk around. You can throw a ball up in the air aboard a plane. Why is that, Ross? Why can you throw a ball up in the air and catch well, it on like a plane? Why doesn't it slide point, backwards? You're really wafting all over the place here. That's your point. Why that, can't that, I throw that was addressing your plane? points, Ross. If okay. I'm wafting all over you. the place, it's because you're all okay, over you the place. Okay, you me the question. I'm trying to answer yeah. you. Thank you. Sure. Okay, why can't you throw a ball up in a plane? Because the plane has a roof. If you throw a ball up, it's going to hit the roof and it's going to come back down. If you plane did not have a roof, do you think that if you threw the ball up, it's going to fall straight back down? I don't think so, Mark. You, you seem to think that the whole earth is enclosed in something like an aeroplane roof or something. What, what, so, so when you throw a ball up, that hits the roof, does it? Did I just hit the roof? 
If you're in a plane, how high is the roof in a plane? It's the same high as a ceiling, Ross. You walk around in a plane. What are you talking about? A plane. Your example. An aeroplane. Have you ever been aboard an aeroplane? 500 miles per hour, and I threw a ball up 50 metres in the air. I didn't say 50 metres. I don't think so. I, I didn't say 50 metres. Well, I didn't say 50 metres. Throw it up a metre, Ross. Inside and an enclosed capsule of a pressurised aeroplane and yes. comparing that to the, to the same example of being on the outside surface of a spinning space ball with no protective outside cover hurtling through a vacuum. You no, moron. It's because, no, it's because, hey, no name-calling, Ross. Try and have some decorum, mate, like seriously. Um to try and imagine, basically, the air on the earth is in the same inertial frame of reference that we are. It is moving with us. So How? is the air in the plane. How? It doesn't How? matter if there is a cover on it, it or not. That air is know, all Mark. within the same. How? Ross, on, please, I, sure I, I can't not, talk here. Just, Could you yeah, please contain in, your, your little outburst? We're not able to hear you guys. Arthur's speaking over each other. So I do want to give Mark... Maybe another minute, and then we'll kick it back over to you, Flatter sure. Ozzy. But go ahead, Mark. Yeah, sure. So it doesn't matter what the container is because I'm not hitting the container. I'm not throwing it up 50 meters. It doesn't matter. What ought to happen if your idea of that that um, physics is correct is that when I throw the ball up in an aeroplane, it should move back with the speed of the aeroplane, but it doesn't. And the reason why is because of momentum. That ball in the inertial frame of reference has the same momentum going forward that I do, so it acts as if it is stationary, as if I am stationary. And that's why you don't feel speed, only changes in vector, acceleration, deceleration, and turning. Um, if you want to ask how it does that, go for it. You know, you had a question. Okay, thank you, Mark, for finally finishing up and saying how when we're inside an enclosed pressurised capsule where all the air is getting pushed forward with the momentum of the plane because the plane has a rear, it has walls and it has a ceiling, so all the air is getting pushed forward with it. But you're trying to compare this inside an enclosed capsule to being in the outside of a spinning space ball in a vacuum, which has no container. So that is why I'm asking you, how does the air move with the Earth inside the universe-sized vacuum? And you have got no answer for that. You have to put it all inside a pressurised capsule and assume it's not moving when we know for a fact that the plane itself actually is moving 500 miles per hour and the Earth itself moves zero beneath it the whole time, whether towards the east or the west. Every single plane factors in zero speed of the Earth. And, yes, I did throw in all those big figures in my description, in my opening statement, because these are your figures, mate. They're your figures. When I bring them to you, you get scared of them because they're your belief that I'm debunking and saying there is zero motion. There is zero speed. The earth doesn't move. The plane moves. The air moves when it's windy. When it's not windy, the air is still. And yet you're supposed to be trying to tell us that for perfectly still air, it is moving a 1,000 miles per hour and gradually getting faster and faster the higher it goes just to keep up the illusion of being perfectly still. And then if we've got a five-mile-per-hour wind from the west, oh, it's going 1,035 miles per hour. If it's five miles from the east, oh, it's 1,045 miles per hour. 
all these ridiculous things when it would just be a five-mile-per-hour wind. It's simple. Occam's razor says the simple explanation with the least amount of assumptions is the correct one. And yet you're assuming massive, massive motions, and that's just the spin. We haven't even started talking about the orbit at 66,000 miles an hour or the speed of the sun, which all these things must be doing all at once, which was my very last point, saying, well, the thing falling at 10 metres per second squared just falls at 10 metres per second squared. It is not going sideways, unfathomable speeds in order to create the illusion of just dropping straight down. And yet you are inventing these false scenarios where everything does what you think it does because you want to believe in your spinning spaceball model. Okay, that was a lot of gish, Gallup. Um, so the, the, no, when you basically say that, that um, the, the plane is pressurised, guess what? The Earth is pressurised as well. Hey, funny that the earth is pressurized as well. We have air pressure. So the whole idea that the plane is different because it's pressurized, guess what atmosphere we keep that at? Yes, earth atmosphere, the pressure no. that we have at sea level. So this whole idea that says, well, the plane's pressurized, the earth's pressurized. Funny that. That's awesome, Ross. Um, the whole idea, and you say there's no container and stuff. Yeah, at gravity acts as a container, pulling down the molecules ah, of the air and creating that pressure. Yeah, if I could just continue and creating that pressure and i can sort of show you how that 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 works um we do I'm lose some on, atmosphere yeah thanks ross thanks for your little right. outburst mate um we 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 can explain that and we can um we do lose some atmosphere to space it's called atmospheric escape um and we do have that happening now the, the plane is in the inertial reference frame and so is the earth so um you know, you sort of say, oh, you're scared of big numbers. I'm not scared of the big numbers. They exist. They're just hey, big numbers. Hey, hey. You what have... about gravity? What about gravity telling me how the atmosphere is what? moving through the vacuum? Can you not interrupt me, Ross? Do you have any well, sense you of... Were, you were trying to answer a okay, question. Okay, can we please question, put and now a you're just muzzle on the horse? Another Iron topic. horse, I do want to give him a chance, just like we gave you about roughly two minutes. I want to give Mark yeah. another 60 I'd seconds. I'd just like him to answer the question and not move yeah, on to another topic. He's We'll give you a chance to ask those questions, but I just want to give him that last 60 seconds or so, so it's roughly equal. Yeah, he's just scared. Yeah, so so basically, he's scared of big numbers. I'm not. I'm fine with big numbers. I, you know, I know that their big numbers exist. You're the one that's scared of the big numbers. You think from personal incredulity. If it's a big number, it can't possibly exist. Well, guess what? The universe is measured in big numbers. That's a fact. Get over it. Deal with it. However you would like. And nobody on the scientific side is scared of big numbers. We're the ones crunching those numbers and putting them into practice. So. I don't know why you would say that. It just seems like a very petulant, childish outburst. Um, Occam's razor doesn't say the simplest explanation is always the correct one. It is a much more complex kind of uh, calculation. It basically says, do not multiply entities when searching for explanations. That is to keep things simple as possible when searching for explanations. The problem is the flat earth for this thing is simple, but you address none of the other problems that arise from flat earth. And by the way, 10 metres per second is not how fast it's dropping down. The acceleration is 10 metres per second per second. So you don't know what you're talking about when you're talking about the force of gravity. Um, and and I, I noticed that you're steering right away from the things that I brought up. Maybe we can take this opportunity for you to explain how a lunar eclipse happens and why we only see shadows on the, the moon of the Earth that are curved. Maybe you can explain that. Go for it. 
Look at you. Look at you just running away from the actual topic at hand and changing the topic as quickly as you can just to avoid answering it. We're still talking about how you can have pressurized air inside a capsule of the aeroplane, which makes perfect sense, but you cannot have pressurized air inside a vacuum without the container. And you refuse to answer that, and then you just dish out upon to the next topic because you know you've got nothing. You cannot have a pressurized atmosphere on anything inside of a vacuum. The very definition of a vacuum means it's sucked out all of the pressure. So to have pressure, a pressurized atmosphere indicates first and foremost that the earth must not be in a vacuum. It has to be contained in some manner, just as the air inside the aeroplane is contained in some physical manner. So if you want to gish gallop then off to the next subject and talk about the moon, that's just Fine, let's talk about the moon. We can see when the moon is at a half phase, like we just had a full moon last night for those people who are lunar aware, that's my lunar calendar, which I always keep track of the moon throughout the year. When the moon is at half phase, what do we see on it? A straight shadow. Ooh, you can never have a straight shadow on the moon caused by a, a, a curved surface. But the, the, the shadow on the moon caused by in it during a lunar eclipse is not from the Earth. And that is easily proven by the fact that we have the Selenellian eclipse. We can clearly see the shadows coming from the complete opposite way, that there's no possible way that the sun has descended down into the underworld, as you Helios like to believe it does every night. It's gone down beneath us in the underworld and it's shining its light up on the earth onto the moon when we can see the sun and moon at the same time. The, Hel the Selenellian eclipse absolutely destroys the fact that it could possibly be the shadow from the Earth causing a lunar eclipse. If you took a straight piece of paper, a book, and you had a ball on the ground and you took it out in the sunlight and you cast the shadow on that ball with your book, you will get a curved shadow. The shadow comes from the shape of the object that's been cast upon, not cast by the object casting the shadow. So to even assume that... The, it's the Earth's shadow and it has to be curved and that for, therefore proves Earth is a ball, is all utter nonsense. It's not even a curved shadow from the Earth. It can be anything that's casting the shadow. And as we've proven with the Selenellian eclipse, it is something else. And we know this other thing is what we call the dark moon or Rahu. It's another, uh, often called the dark sun. It's another object that hangs around the sun and we don't see it for this very same reason we never ever see a new moon. It is basically, um, what's the word for it? Exposure. It's too bright near the sun, so you don't see it. In very rare circumstances, you might catch a glimpse of this thing when it's very hazy, and it will look like we've got two suns. That is the thing which comes between the sun and the moon to cause a lunar eclipse. And mainstream scientists readily admit that this dark sun, as they sometimes call it, actually exists. So. For you to think that we've got no explanation for eclipses that proves we're on a spinning space ball hurtling through space at millions of miles an hour in a vacuum with no container, uh, yeah, try harder, Mark. Try harder. 
<laughs> double sun. That's great. I love it. Um, so the, the pressurized atmosphere is kept there by gravity, as I said multiple times. So your whole uh, idea of, oh, Mark has no answer. I do have an answer. So if the Earth had a container, as you claimed, you made a claim there that the Earth has a container over it, what ought to happen, according to the second laws of, 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 of uh, 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 thermodynamics, is that the air should equalize to become the same pressure, like in an aeroplane or like in any other container. It would not have a pressure gradient going up from high pressure at the bottom to low pressure at the top. And this is where you have absolutely proven yourself wrong, because if there was a physical container there, the air would equalize and all become the same pressure. But we know that going up a mountain, the air becomes thinner. It becomes less pressurized. People have to take oxygen, oxygen up Everest. You are absolutely wrong. And the, you've just shown that by claiming that there is a container around the earth. Because if that was there, would, would all like, of the would air like would equal. That? Excuse me, excuse me, would equalize. Now, this, this is the same thing you're claiming where the air should go out to space. It should equalize. Yes, but gravity is holding it down. And if there was a container, all of that air would equalize, which is exactly your argument for why the air should go out to space. So congratulations for proving yourself absolutely wrong. Now, when you talk about phases of the moon, phases well, of the moon like is not... No, 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 you don't. No, you don't. I'm, I'm addressing your points. Ross, control yourself. Well, I'm just asking, you know, when you want to jump to another subject again, and that's fine, we can go back to the you moon. You brought it up, Ross. You brought up the phases of the moon. You can't gish gallop and then try to prevent me from addressing what you said. There's two, people aren't able to hear either of you, if both of you are speaking, so I do want to chop it into pieces. So we'll give a chance to Iron Horse to respond, and then we'll come back to you, Mark. Look, he brought up every single one of these subjects, James. And now Are you saying that you want more time to respond to other yeah, stuff that he mentioned. He, he brought up we'll the pressurized container. He brought up. Can I, can I talk? Can I, I, I talk, Ross? I'll, I'll, how about I want to Yeah, Iron Horse, question. just give me a sec. Is uh, I'll give you maybe another 60 seconds, Mark, and then I've got to sure. kick it over to Iron Horse. Yeah, what I'm pointing out is that it, Ross is gish galloping, and then when I try to address his point, he's saying, no, 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 we want to do one at a time. This is a tactic by him to stop me from addressing his points and then going, oh, we didn't we can address come them. Back to so, the moon, Mark. It's just 60 seconds. It's like he was, it was only 55 seconds left. Like, okay, so phases of the moon is not an eclipse and we know it's not a lunar eclipse. To bring up phases of the moon, phases of the moon are caused by the orientation of the sun. We know this. That's not even an argument. So you're completely wrong, completely ignorant about astronomy. You've got no idea what you're talking about. Phases of the moon is not a lunar eclipse and we can, we can, Track the sun, know when they'll happen. They're not lunar eclipses. You're absolutely wrong. The Selenhelion uh, eclipse, when it appears to be on the horizon, um, you brought this up as well, Ross. Um, that is refraction, causing it to look like it is higher than it actually is. And it just perfectly simple refraction. Easy. Done. Um, uh, anything casting a shadow on the moon. What is the anything? You can't just say anything could be casting a shadow on the moon. What is it? Don't don't run away and say, well, it could be anything. What is it? And it's hilarious that you think there's a second sun. I mean, that's just that's just precious. Where is your second sun? Where, where are your photographs of the second sun? We've got solar filters. Let's take photographs of this mystical second sun that hangs out somehow evading all attempts to capture it, Ross. Maybe you can do some magic to capture it in a, in a photo sometime. 
Wow. See, you, you can't just stick to one topic, which is the problem. You want to just keep dish galloping all over the place, whereas if we were going to talk about the pressure of the air, which you began with, I think we could stick to that, deal with it, and then we can start talking about the moon. So when we're talking about air pressure gradient, of course that can happen on the stationary plane of Earth because the stationary plane of Earth is the only physical plane in existence. Therefore, everything that is physical exists here on this plane, which makes all of our gases exist here, and they exist in accordance with density. The various densities of the gas will pre prevent, present their own pressure gradient just as much as if you go underwater, it's the volume of water above you pressing down that creates a pressure gradient. So as we get higher in the air, there will be less of it above us pressing down on us. And they've taken samples of air from places like Mount Everest and found it's exactly the same air as it is down there. There's just less of it pressing down on us. And that is, of course, why water itself will boil at a lower temperature at that height. It'll boil at about 93 degrees centigrade then it will at sea level at 100 degrees uh, centigrade. And then if you go even further deeper underground, yeah, it has to get hotter and hotter before it starts to boil. It's simply a matter of pressure, which comes from natural density and buoyancy, which everything physical, this whole physical realm exists because of the pressure. So if we went to particularly high, like the height of the aeroplane, for example, the reason it's pressurised at one atmosphere, or actually slightly less. Um, can we address that before moving onwards, if that's what Ross wants to do? Because now he's going to aeroplane. That's what I'm doing, Mark, if you don't mind. Like, don't, don't interrupt. Well, you, you were on the pressure gradient, and I'd like to address. If we're doing yeah. one thing and then moving so the on. The reason why that aeroplane is pressurised as it is, is because we function better at that pressure. And if the aeroplane wasn't pressurised, we need oxygen masks because we're not getting enough pressure to breathe properly. So the whole point of having pressure on the physical plane at the bottom of the known universe is how we exist, how life exists. Life doesn't exist anywhere else. You keep looking yeah, now at life, life existing other places. Can we stick to one topic if that's what you're doing? This is the topic, Mark. Don't you think that outer space is teeming with planets? Don't dish gallop. That's that's outer that's space. Going. You're going on to no, something no, no, no. else. Yeah, this on. is his tactic. I do, to be fair, I, I, to be fair, I do have to give equal time. So we can give you maybe another, maybe sixty seconds. Iron horse, and then Thank we'll kick it back over to you, Mark. Yeah. And please mute the mutant if you can't shut up. If we assume gaseous giants inside the vacuum of space we assume other planets, then all these things have to have their own pressure as well. But we don't have to assume that at all. On the stationary plane of Earth, we have the one pressure gradient, and that's why humans need to have it to exist here on Earth. And that is why an aeroplane at five miles of height needs to be pressurised or we can't breathe properly. So the very fact you think that gravity is what holds the atmosphere to the Earth in a vacuum, just proves you've got no clarity of thought whatsoever. It can't exist. You have to have the stationary plane at the bottom of everything in order for density and an atmosphere to even exist in the first place. And that is what this argument is all about. You seem to think that the flat earth is in outer space or something, looking at some of your cartoon pictures of it. It's not. We're at the base of the universe, and it's the only physical plane of existence. All right, we'll kick it over, Mark.
Okay, so this is this is what Ross is doing. He's basically gish galloping. And then when I try and address his points, he says, no, 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 only one at a time. So he's brought up, you know, there's pressure, planes, um, life on other planets, base of the universe in, a, in a, an attempt to get stuff out so I can't address it. So Gravity. we'll go through all of the things that he said. Yeah, Ross, shut up. Shut up. Like, cover your, shove your beard in your mouth or something. Just shut up. Um, so the pressure of the air and the pressure gradient um, I don't know what a plane of existence is. You know, that's something Ross will have to, you know, do in his <laughs> dream or something. Um, the, the, so yeah, Ross, shut up. See, so this is the thing. Yeah, just mute him. He's, he's got no self-control. Um, so the dent, he refuted himself by basically saying that the air up the top is the same as the air down the bottom. How can the density be the same? Because density is mass within space. How, how is the density the same of the air at the top and the bottom? Yet density is causing the air to be more pressurised down the bottom. Ross went and refuted himself because if the density is the same of that air, then it should not have anything to do with why more is at the bottom than at the top. But Ross doesn't think about this. He just refutes himself without actually thinking about it um so you've got this idea of density and and um that doesn't explain why for instance if you drop a rubber ball and a steel ball bearing they both hit the ground at the same time that's exactly what happens and density does not explain that because the ball bearing is much more dense than a rubber ball ross has got no explanation for this he just wants to say oh well the air is the same but for some reason this air down the bottom just likes being there just just wants to be there, he refutes himself. Um, the reason why it's more dense down the bottom is because gravity pulls on the uh, air molecules, forcing them into a contained space. That contained space exerts pressure. That forces some of the molecules out, and so it makes a gradient going up. Um, and Ross also wants you to think, for some reason, I don't know why, maybe because of his plane of existence or something, that physics yeah. works differently in different places for some unknown reason. That for some reason, in a plane, there's no gradient, but on Earth, suddenly there is, for some reason. Like, just... just why not? Why not? It's been two um, minutes. And, I'd and give you another minute, but then we'd have to give Iron Horse sure. the same three minutes. Sure. Yeah. I, I, life on other planets, we haven't really been to other planets, so we don't really know for sure where life is. I don't know why he went on to that. Um, the planets have different pressures. Yes, they do, because they have different masses. What you're looking for is gravitational attraction of mass, not density. Density doesn't matter. Mass does. You got it. All right. Well, that's also another great load of bollocks there. Thank you very much, Mark, for bringing up the example of the rubber ball and the steel ball, why they hit the earth at the same speed when they dropped from a great height. And it's the fact that they were both exactly having the same amount of air resistance. So density is actually the thing because it's the density of the air, which is the resistance factor. Because both of them are balls, they have the same resistance in the air as they do. And then if they hit to the water, then gravity itself gets very, very choosy, doesn't it? It says, oh, come down to me, steel ball. I love you. I want you. Come to me. But gravity said, no, bugger you, rubber ball. You stay up there and float on the surface. And then, of course, you Helios will say, yeah, but density. It's been density the whole time. Of course, it's the density of the objects and the resistance factor of the medium. And that's exactly what we're talking about the whole time. I mean, you, you, you carried on with so much crap there that 
I even lost my train of thought. Like we're talking about the density of air. The density is a requirement of the pressure as well. So, of course, as you go higher, the pressure is less. So the air itself becomes less dense. But we also have a range of different gases. I don't know if you've ever heard of this thing called the, the periodic table of elements. These These elements are what makes up the physical reality that we exist upon, and the atmosphere is teeming with a range of different gaseous elements, and they each have their own different molecular weight. So you will find that once you reach a certain height, which is around this 12 to 14-mile high mark, there is no air whatsoever that is able to be breathed. In fact, if you went up there with a camera, you will see that even in broad daylight, it's pitch darkness. And this is the place where uh, high-altitude pilots are going to say, oh, we've reached the edge of space because there's no light up there. It's gone pitch black. Why hasn't it? It's because the various elements of our atmosphere are what are ionised by the power coming from the sun to create daylight in the very first place. If that wasn't the case, then there would be no such thing as night, even on your spinning space ball, because the whole universe would be teeming with light. But yeah, the I fact don't that see we what know this that has got to do with gravity's into light is Gish again. Uh, is is this how we're another, going to operate? It's, it's close to your uh, end. I can give you about another 20 seconds to have it be equal with Mark's, and then we've got to kick it back over to Mark. Look, I don't mind no, no. doing either way. I don't no, no, mind if he talks and then I address every point or whether we do it point oh, by well. point. I just want to be consistent. That's all. Right. That's what I was doing is being consistent. Because last okay. time yeah, you did thanks, Mark. maybe two minutes and 20 seconds. And Such so a I, lovely I can give Iron, if he wants another 20 seconds, you got it, Iron. Otherwise, we'll kick it over to Mark right now. Thank you. Thank you, James. I would appreciate being able to finish my point before being rudely interrupted. Is that the fact that light exists is a result of the sun stimulating or ionising the various elements of the atmosphere to give us daylight. And that's why we have day and night. You can't have that in your spinning space ball model because you think that the whole universe is teeming with light, and yet that itself proves that it wouldn't be dark at night. You couldn't have it. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I just hate being interrupted. It's just... Totally right, you'll me do off. it enough. You'll we'll do it, it enough. Mark. Yeah, so so this is the thing. Russ claims to want to do point by point, and then when it suits his needs, he'll go multiple points because that's what he does. He's dishonest, and that's just what he's like. So well done, you. You claim you want to do point by point. Oh, what a lovely guy. Look at that. What a lovely, lovely guy. Okay, so air resistance for balls. No, it's got nothing to do with air resistance. We can do the same thing in a vacuum chamber. Whoops, whoops. Whoops, vacuum chamber, Ross. Forgot about that, did we? So no air resistance in a vacuum chamber, mate. So whoops. Oh, dear. And they fall at exactly the same speed. Well, there's a little bit of air resistance on balls, but in a vacuum chamber, both the rubber and the steel ball fall at exactly the same speed. Why is that? You can't explain it because it's not air resistance. So nice, nice crap that you just pulled from your ass, but that is not the reason. And we can prove that. Um, so resistance against mediums, you said when, when it hits water, then one will go down and one won't. Correct. And that is because of the mass of them and the surface area of the, the uh, water. Um, you have surface tension, which causes a resistance um, to certain things if there is enough weight. And you used, you slipped up and used the word weight yourself because weight is dependent on, uh-oh, mass, which is gravity. So the more mass something has, the heavier it is. 
And so, but no matter how big it is, it still falls at the same rate. And the reason why is because of Newton's laws. Something will remain at rest until acted on by another force. And, and once that object is in motion, it will conserve its momentum. So it will keep going until acted on by a different force. And you would know this if you had any kind of education whatsoever. But what it basically means is the big, heavier something is, the more mass it has, the more force is required to enable it to move. So basically, when gravity affects something, the bigger it is, the more it attracts it, but the harder it is to make it move. So those two forces cancel each other out and everything drops at the same rate. It's not air resistance. That is just so ignorant. I don't know how to, you know, even pass that one. Do it, in a, do it in a vacuum chamber. Um, like the whole, the whole idea that I'll give you three minutes, minutes if you'd like, Mark. Do you want to go for another minute? But then we, you know, same thing applies. Okay. For... Maybe, maybe two minutes is good because that way we won't keep fish galloping from subject to subject, um, you know. Only you're doing that, Ross. The, the, the whole idea that because there's stars in the sky, it can't be dark enough. No, you want another minute. Okay, have another minute. It's just ridiculous. Like, the, the, they're not bright enough for you to see by. You can still have like very small lights and it can still be dark. Like if a candle is a long way away, you can see the light, but it's still dark. So for some reason, Ross wants you to think that the laws of physics in outer space suddenly change for some reason. It's not the sunlight ionising the atmosphere that you can see by. It's your eyes accepting the sunlight bound, reflected off objects that provide us with vision. It, it's the whole idea that somehow atmosphere has to be ionised for your eyes to see is just... What, what what breathing mechanism does your eyes have, Ross, that's taking in this ionised atmosphere? Is that a question? Yes, it's a question. Oh, good, I'm not muted. No, what breathing mechanism do my eyes have to see yes. light? That, that's such the most sensible question I've ever been asked in my life, Mark. Um, I, I, I fail to see anything logical behind it, but the breathing mechanism, I guess, well, it's they're moist, and so the osmosis of atmospheric gases must be breathing the light in order to see it. Is that what you're really trying to say? I, it, it, it's escapes me the, the logic behind even such a silly question in the first place. We, we see light because of the ionisation. It's exactly like if we had a, a fluorescent light bulb, the gases in that are what fluoresce when they're stimulated by some sort of electrical force, and that is what the sun is. It is some sort of electrical force that is stimulating the atmospheric gases to turn them into an open-air light bulb. You can see before dawn and after dusk, how the atmosphere slowly fades or comes into, gets brighter and brighter. But you don't see a shadow cast by this particular light until you've actually got the sun itself, which is another plasma ball of light, which is, of course, again, it's part of the whole model and the scale of which it exists at. And that's why when scientists look at it, they'll say, well, um, oh, it's uh, hydrogen fusing into helium, <laughs> like it's a big fusion ball. But that, that's actually just seeing the chemical reaction of what we're actually witnessing when we see the light source hitting the firmament above us. We're just seeing this plasma ball of light. And I think that in itself is probably a great argument because on, on the globe model, when we're looking at the sun at midday, we're supposed to assume then that the terminator line of the sun lighting the earth is over this massive big curve. It's 4,000 miles of drop either side of us. And 
on a linear scale, if you travel, it'll be about 6,250 miles away. So you're supposed to think that at sunrise and sunset, either side of you is going to be 6,250 miles away either side with 4,000 miles of drop while at midday it's directly above you. And yet when we see the sun at midday, and we see the horizon either side of us, it's barely three or four miles either side of us. And you're supposed to think that when you're seeing it setting then, it's over 4,000 miles of drop away, 6,250 miles away, and yet in reality it's only just three or four miles. How is that at all possible? The only way it can be possible is when we use perspective and we see that we are on a flat earth and we see that the sun itself is as much as 6,250 miles away. And by that point, the ball of plasma that it is casting through the firmament is starting to be obscured by convergence. The fact that this horizon has risen up to eye level, and that's what it always does. Convergence yeah. always means that what is in front of you converges up to eye level and what is above you converges down to eye level. And that is perspective 101. That's three minutes. We'll kick it over to Mark for three minutes. Yeah, so the, the light bulb thing, like ionizing the atmosphere like a light bulb, the light bulb produces light, but then it goes into your eyes. Like it's not it's not any kind of ionization of the atmosphere producing light. It's just reflected reflected light. It, it's, you know, I don't know where he gets this, this absolute tripe from. Um, so I don't know what he's talking about because if it ionizes the atmosphere and that's what causes you to see instead of light, instead of light, then somehow you would have to get that ionised atmosphere into your eyes. And I don't know what he's talking about. Um, the sun is hydrogen fusing into helium. We've done fusion experiments. They're proceeding to progress. Um, we've actually gained energy out of the latest fusion experiments if you kept up with science. So we're kind of demonstrating that is possible. And I mean, it's just the sun, it's plasma. Um, so so the, the, the whole thing is he's like, oh, there's the firmament. Why don't you demonstrate this? Like you make all these claims, like these random claims, and then you refuse to demonstrate any of them. Get some firmament. Find, find some firmament. Demonstrate that the firmament exists. He won't do it. He'll just throw it out, claim it's there, empty claim. I don't know where he gets 4,000 miles of drop from 6,000 miles. Like, what, what is that? I don't know where he got that from. Like, that is fully a number that is just pulled out of nowhere. Um, the, the sun is, um, the, the whole idea of perspective is what's causing the sunrise and sunset is absolutely ridiculous. Like, and I, I do notice, I do notice he hasn't answered any of my questions. He wants to remain firmly on his own and not get to my ones. So where is the um, circumpolar south constellations southwards from? Is it southwards from Africa? Is it southwards from Australia? Or is it southwards from South America? And you're the time. Radio. So, well, because you like to just go all over the place, those numbers of 4,000 miles of drop and 6,250 miles of curvature come from your spinning space ball, which has the circumference that Eratosthenes measured from shadows of sticks that says it's just approximately 25,000 miles around. So if you have 25,000, you get 12,500. You have that again, you got 6,250. You get a diameter of 8,000 miles, so half of that is 4,000 miles. So the drop that you are seeing from midday means that the sunrise spot is 4,000 miles of drop at 6,250 miles. It comes from your numbers, not mine. I don't believe that we're on a spinning space ball at all. So if I use your numbers and they confuse you, then I've 
I make no apology for that because I use them to mock you because I think they're absolutely ridiculous. Um, so now you're talking about, what was your last question again? The, the stars in the south. Well, how do we look at the stars in the north in the first place? We face north and we look upwards and we see them in the north. And so if we then turn around and look the other way, it's just like, you know, if I ask you what's your left hand, what's my right hand, and you'll say, no, no, that's my left, that's my right. It's You just turn around and look the other way. So, of course, they're going to look like they're going the other way. That's all there is to it. And the fact that we know then for a fact all the celestials, the stars, the sun and the moon, they rise in the east, they set in the west. So they are going in that same direction around Polaris the whole time. And the people in South America and South Africa who are seeing the same constellations, guess what they see at the daytime? The same sun. Guess what they're looking at when they look at the moon? The same moon. Now, because the stars, as we know, is part of our sky clock, they're going around the sidereal day, which is 23 hours, 56 minutes and four seconds, slightly that four minutes faster than the sun, which is how we measure a year in the first place. And, of course, at their local nighttime, when they're looking up, Facing the other way, they're going to see the same stars that we will see at our local nighttime in our local time zone. How hard is that to even comprehend? Okay, um, so so this whole of four thousand miles drop, as I said, it's not our calculations. It's not our calculations at all. You've just pulled a number yeah, from it some site. It, it's not our. Yeah, thank you. I'll just continue. Um, our actual thing of the obstructed distance is a equals the square root of r plus h squared minus r squared. So you, that's actually the correct calculation. It's not as easy as just hey. And it all depends on the height that you're at. It all depends on height. So your whole idea of oh well, this is what it is is absolutely. It's not our numbers at all. It's flat earth tomfoolery is what it is. Um, so the <laughs> celestial southern constellations, you never answered my question about that. If you can see, and I can see the flat earth uh, map behind you, which is incredibly convenient. If you look south from Australia, you're looking up towards the uh, top left of the map. If you're looking south from South America, you're looking down the bottom of the map. And if you're looking south from Africa, you're looking to the top right. So you're basically saying that the people look south on that map and they see the same stars. That's your argument. Like, if you look at that and do turn around and have a look at it, that people facing south on those three points looking in three different directions are all looking at the same stars at the same time, you need to get your head checked because there is no way that people standing with their backs to one another are going to look and see the same things. So I don't know why. Yeah, yeah, look. Yeah, there you go. Oh, oh, it's, it's rotating around, is it? And they all see it at the same time, do they? Why do they all see the same stars at the same time? They are looking up and they don't no. see the same stars at the same time, Mark. Don't be dishonest. At least try and be honest about what you're trying to rant and rave about here. We look up, so we're looking this way to see the stars. We might be facing southwards, but we're looking up. So we're not looking out. Nobody looks out. The horizon is out. Nobody looks to the horizon to see the stars. You look up into the sky to see the stars, and we do not see them at the same time. We have this thing called time zones, and that is why this thing here is actually a time and date calculator, and if it had the original arm going around it, it would show you. So 
if it's midday here in Australia, it will be midnight over here on the west of South America over there. That's how it works. So this is actually proof, and, and you can use it. It's a scientific calculator for time and the fact that we have time zones. It's exactly what's been put on the, the app that's put, been put out by Blue Water, I believe it's called, something like um, the time uh, moon, sun, and zodiac calculator. It shows actual real-time physical properties of the sun, and I think that was the one thing where you were having serious troubles was understanding how much you can put this much light on, on the Earth at one time but not in the north. And it's a possibility that the map isn't actually accurate. I mean, we can claim it to be 100% accurate. It's the closest we've got. But how many thousands and thousands of different globe maps have we been shown throughout the centuries and not a single one of them agrees with one another? So, you know, it's just an example of what we think the Earth is probably the most like. But we definitely do not see the same stars at the same time. Uh, so here we see Ross back away from his own model. Oh, it's completely accurate. No, it's not so accurate anymore, is it, ladies and gentlemen, um, which is which is hilarious. Now, I'm just going to share my screen quickly just to point out how Ross is 100% lying to you, um, which is unfortunate for him. Um, so if I could just share my screen briefly. Crystal clear. Crystal clear. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so if we look at this time lapse of the uh, southern celestial poles, this is claiming, and you can see the trees and the, the, the sort of hills in the background here. This is Ross claiming you're looking directly up. This is Ross lying again, um, because this is not directly up. There is no way this is directly up. What part of directly up is this? Ross is lying to you. And this is what he's been doing all night. Thank you, James. I just wanted to make that crystal clear. And now he's claiming, well, it's not accurate. It's not accurate. If we're looking at that, that perspective, there should be, and, and, you know, you can check it yourself. People in South, South Africa see exactly the same thing. People in South America see exactly the same thing. They're the same constellations, the same stars, and on the same nights. Um, you know, what is causing that Ross claims they're looking up, not out? That just proves him wrong. He is 100% wrong and that proves it. Um, and but so he wants to back away from his model and sort of say, oh, no, but it's not accurate. So I can I can sort of excuse these, these nonsense logical leaps and, and irrational things that I believe. Well, tough, Ross, you've got a model and it doesn't work. It's not just not a bit accurate. It's not accurate at all. It doesn't have any accuracy whatsoever. Did you take those that film yourself? No, you didn't. You have been shown something which anybody could have put that false uh, front in front of it to show that that's what's happening. It's easy enough to do. You can easily use a split screen to show that that's the case. I've never met anybody who's taken their own Southern Constellation star trails and proven that they're doing it from a single point and watching. You, you can watch, actually. You could see it yourself in your own presentation that each of those star trails, they move a little bit and then all of a sudden it just seems to jump and the whole thing twists a bit while they leave the foreground at the front, making it look as though that's the case that's going on. But when we look at the ones from the north, we can see that if they leave the camera open for long enough, the stars make pretty well a good half circle. You know? And that's something in itself is quite bizarre because you're not exactly at the very north pole. But what, what happened to this circumference 
of the earth, you know, and that's exactly, you know, you keep trying to deny the own circumference of the earth, which is what I said. It's If the radius is 4,000 miles, that is the amount of drop it is every 90 degrees from upright to other side. That's 4,000 miles of drop. That is the measurements of the earth given to us. So if you're at a halfway point and you're spinning around but you've got your camera aligned at this very far distant point, then the star trails would be actually very, very oblate looking or very, um, what's the other word? It's, it's not oval, but it's well, egg-shaped. It'd, it'd somehow be very egg-shaped because of this circumference of the Earth, and you are still in absolute denial of the orbital speed. The orbital speed at 66,600 miles per hour is 65 times greater than the singular 1,040 mile per hour speed that you're rotating at. So why are you not seeing any of this sideways motion? It's 65 times greater. It's, it comes back to your own arguments destroy themselves because all you're really ever doing is showing that the Earth itself has to be stationary, and all you are seeing is your own personal subjective view of the stars themselves moving around a center point. We'll kick it back over to Mark for three minutes. Oh, thank you, James. Um, so, yeah, so like the whole idea that, that, oh, well, you didn't take it yourself and I've never met anybody that's taken this. Well, he can take it if he wants to. I mean, it's it's fully a, like readily available. It's the sky from Australia. Um, the, the fact that I didn't take it myself, this is moving the goalposts as, you know, Ross and other flat earthers. There's love to do. They just move the goalposts, say, hey, you didn't take that. You weren't there. You People all over the world everywhere and you can see this yourself it's not something that if you set up a time-lapse camera you can see it yourself on a cloudless night it's not something that anyone's trying to hide from you um but you know ross is you know i mean he should have his tinfoil hat and everything so so we don't get whatever it is um so this half this 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 idea of the 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 diameter of the earth nobody nobody denied the diameter of the earth. say oh you want to deny no nobody's denying it and to say it's six thousand miles you can tell that ross has been listening to flat earthers in america because we're talking in kilometers in australia so you know that he's gotten he's gone to some website or some stupid youtube video and gotten the wrong measurements the earth is actually 40,000 kilometers in diameter ross so it, it's not so the circumference, circumference i, I do circumference. apologize yeah yeah, circumference, I'm sorry. It's 40,000 kilometres, not 6,000 miles. I, I don't know where you got that number from. I would say America because that's where they talk in miles and you don't. Thank miles. you, Ross. Thank you. You can be quiet now. That's where they talk in miles, not in Australia. So you know he's not getting this information from his own sources. He's going to America to get the miles that he's talking in. Um, the orbital speed, I've already explained that. And he sort of said, hey, the Earth's rotating this amount of speed, so therefore the Star Trek should be going faster it's nonsense the earth rotates at 15 degrees per hour which is exactly the same rate we see the star trails moving funny that it matches up perfectly with the globe model because those stars are rotating at 50 degree, 15 degrees per hour and throwing out large numbers like oh this massive speed as i've already explained orbit, inertial reference, excuse me inertial, inertial reference frame Excuse me, inertial reference frames 
you do not feel speed. You only feel changes in velocity and direction. That's all you feel. And, and I've explained why that is. So don't come to me with your nonsense about how they should move faster when the Earth is only claimed to be rotating at 15 degrees per hour. So it doesn't orbit while it's rotating. Sure it, it if it's rotating at 15 degrees per hour, then, well, obviously you can't call, talk about the orbital speed because it's only going one degree per day. But that also means, you know, I wrote down the figures before, it's, it's a phenomenal speed or distance to be going in a single day. If I put it into kilometres or miles, makes no difference. If, if we're talking a 40,000-mile circumference, as you like to think of it to be, 40,000 kilometre, yeah, then if we converted that to miles, it's still 25,000 miles, which is slightly less than 24,000 not or slightly 6, more than 24,000. Stop interrupting, Mark. Come on. I can do my own maths here. So if oh, we divided that into quarters, then that gives an 8,000-mile diameter and a 4,000-mile radius. And so if you're at the top of the Earth looking at the sun at midday, then the terminator line at 90 degrees from that, so it's a quarter of the Earth away, is going to be... In rounded figures, 6,250 miles of circumferential difference distance and 4,000 miles of drop. It's just simple mathematics that you can't dispute. Now, the fact is, here in Australia, you've probably seen it yourself. Australia is not the Southern Pole. We are not looking out and downwards every night of the year to be looking outwards. We see the Southern Cross by standing in the same spot every evening, facing southwards, looking up, and we see the Southern Cross every night of the year. Now, if this spinning space ball is going around the sun once per year, the sun in the middle, then what we're looking at at nighttime on one side, it's going to be looking over there. Six months later, nighttime is looking out over there. We should be seeing completely different stars, not the same exact constellations, so you are basically saying that not only is the solar system, the Earth and the wandering stars, heliocentric, but the entire galaxy that we're looking at must be also going around the sun with us at the same time, which is absolutely ludicrous because the distances that you give to these stars means each and every one of them must be moving exactly the right speed, right angle, right adjustment, just to keep the same constellations in the sky every night of the year. And that's what parallax means. You brought up parallax before and you had no idea what it means. Parallax means that the stars would have to be moving very, very precise different speeds and rates in order to keep up the same appearance just for us to be going around the sun all year round. Yeah, that's uh, some really weird calculations on circumference to radius there. That's not actually sort of, um, you know, how you calculate the circumference and radius. The radius is actually the circumference divided by two times pi. So I don't know why you would just quarter it and say, hey, that's the radius, but it just shows the level of sort of mathematics and physics that you're operating at, that you think, hey, if you quarter the circumference, then it becomes the radius. No, no, not, no, not even. And and try that with some circles. See if it works. Good on you, mate. You know, I didn't um, do that, Mark. So the, the whole idea of... Excuse me, excuse me. This is my time. So thank you, Ross. Thank you, Ross. My time. Thank you. Thank you for your outburst. Well, Just put lie. the beard in don't your lie. mouth. Thank you. You finished? 
Okay. When um, you finish Iron Horse, all right, let's see. Let's go over to Mark so he can finish his statement. I'm quite happy yeah. as long as he's not going to lie. Well, shove your beard in your mouth. Just just address it afterwards. Um, so rotating around the sun, you said, hey, it can't be that. The, the stars are so far away that when we rotate around the sun, they don't appear to move to the naked eye. They always seem in the same spot. And you brought up the Southern Cross, which is the Crux constellation, which is sort of 420 light years away, which is an astronomical amount of distance. So your whole idea that they should move is based upon that they are close, sort of local to us, which is not what the globe model says. So you're just engaging in a massive straw man there. Um, the whole idea of parallax, because you don't seem to understand it, is that closer objects move when you move, but it takes a lot further for objects further away. Like think of it as you're sitting in a train, there's a pole right next to the, to the train, um, and there's a building off in the distance. When the train travels, the pole moves through your view very fast. However, the building will still remain there. And that is parallax. And the building may not appear to move to the naked eye. It is moving and we can detect that from stars. So we do know we're rotating around the uh, sun because of that parallax movement. The stars closer to us, we can tell they're moving more than the stars further away. So we've we've looked at that. And, and so the whole idea is Ross doesn't believe the stars are far away. It's an argument from incredulity. He's got nothing to back that up. He can't show this Furman, and he's got nothing to show at all. Just, I don't believe it because, I don't know, I grew a beard and decided it wasn't for me. That's not an argument. That's just a statement of personal incredulity. And I provided facts and observations. We know that the Earth is a globe, an oblate spheroid. And he sort of brings up, um, just all of these straw man arguments and all of these silly things like, you know, the rotation should be faster or this should be the, the, the facts don't care what you think it should be, Ross. So stick to the actual facts and don't make stuff up. Um, and, and when we're <laughs> in the thing, we're not looking outwards and upwards. As I showed, you're looking outwards. And yes, it's elevated, but you claimed we were looking straight up and that's how people in Africa and South America could see the same thing, which is not true because we are looking outward. You, you but they can still right? see exactly the same thing. I'm just addressing your points. They're all your okay. points, Ross. Well, let, let's address your belief then. Your belief says that the ball that we live on is spinning on its axis. Now, that actual rotation means that the parallax of everything else around us should be changing the whole time. It's like if you stood on the spot and you spun around, then the new things to you will move much faster than the further things from you. But in actual fact, they'll still keep on moving. But you are then in absolute denial of the orbital rate and the orbital rate being 65 times greater than the actual spin, the rotation on our axis, and it goes 365.25 rotations to go around the sun once. So it means every night of the year when we're looking out at night, we're looking at a different part of the galaxy surrounding us, which means that six months from now, we should be seeing completely different uh, stars, completely different star systems, completely different constellations. But every night of the year, I look out and I can see the Southern Cross. Now, Australia, while you like to think it's on the bottom of the ball and we're clinging because of this 
magical gravity force thing that you love to believe in, which can't exist until you got mass in the first place. I, I won't get off topic here. The fact is nighttime is looking away from the sun. Now, if you understood your own model, the sun has to be in the centre. So three months from now, I'll be looking at different constellations. Three months from then, I'll be looking at completely different constellations. Yeah, it has to be that way because I'm looking away from the sun, which is the centre. The whole idea of your heliocentric belief, sun worship, everything goes around the sun. So you're saying that all the constellations are moving with us, and that is not at all what we observe. It's just completely stupid. Yeah, so um, the thing is that you've just refuted your own point because you mentioned that it takes 365 days to travel around the sun. So that's an incredible amount of time. It's not a, a, a quick, you know, oh, this time changes, so you should see the stars zip over here. You've just refuted your own point. And the Earth rotating at 15 degrees per hour is not a rapid rotation either. If you turn this ball at, at 15 degrees per hour, guess what? It'll take 24 hours to get from this marker here back to the marker. It's not a rapid rotation at all. So I don't know why you expect to see stars zipping around like you're sort of claiming. Um, the crux is a circumpolar star, which what it means is that it is always illuminated in the night because you are on the curve and you can see it from anywhere that, that, that was the whole point about circumpolar stars that for some reason you completely missed. They never set. That's the whole point. Um, but it'll be at a different place in the sky because don't forget that even though you're going around the sun, the reason why is because the earth is rotating. And sometimes the Southern Cross is sort of uh, seen at evening. Funny that. It's seen at evening in a different place. Lower sometimes, what? higher sometimes. The earth is moving and we can tell from where crux or the southern cross as you call it is being seen in the sky um, because the earth is rotating and our star maps actually have a 360 degree orientation to them if you look up star maps they have an orientation that covers 365 360 degrees all around the earth both northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere so the whole idea that you would see completely different stars what you're assuming is that people have never seen these stars before we should be an entirely different star field why would we that is one of the silliest things i've ever heard because why would we're we on see the different other side stars the, and people right. have seen for thousands of years and finish uh, yeah i'm done i just asked yeah, the question if, if why would we see different the stars sun, then then it makes no sense to be seeing the same stars all year round they'd be changing all the time Unless you are, abs are saying that the whole entire galaxy is also going around the sun, it's simply not possible. I know if I don't know if if you orbited your table and you're looking away from your table, are you going to be seeing the same wall that you're seeing the same time when you're on the other side of the table looking the other way? No, you're going to be looking out and seeing the other side of, of the room. It's exactly the same situation. If you're in a galaxy going around the sun, then you must be looking a different direction to have night. And that in itself is a bloody good reason why we can prove that it is the sun itself that goes around above us because it takes exactly 24 hours as we measure with a clock for the sun to appear back overhead. But if we 
we're going around the sun, 365 and change spirals per day, which you can't even understand the difference of that. You said that day and night proves we have a year, which is just ridiculous. There's 365 days and nights to go around the sun. If we were doing that and we're measuring time strictly by a physical mechanical clock, we measure exactly 24 hours in a day, every single day. That would mean that the earth itself would be slightly displaced by a degree every day. So that after six months, that same orbital clock midday would be looking away at directly midnight. And I know that you love to bring up the sidereal day to try and explain this, but the fact is there's 360 degrees in a clock. So you cannot say that the Earth is spinning 361 degrees while the clock goes 360 degrees. You can't say that the clock is going 359 degrees or the Earth is going 359 degrees. It's 360 degrees. It's an exact amount of time every single day. And the only way that can work is if the sun itself is going around above us at exactly 24 hours. If we're going around the sun, it would change or we would have to adjust our clocks by a degree per day, which ends up to be four minutes, to prevent day and night from swapping places according to the clock. So the mechanical clock actually proves the stationary plane of Earth. Yeah, the, the ignorance is, is overwhelming. Um, the actual day length of Earth is 23 hours, 59 minutes, and 59.996404 milliseconds. So it's not actually exactly 24 hours. Ooh, In the future, once it has moved around and rotated, we're going to lose time and somehow have to correct that. But it's so close. And we've set up our... Our, our day to reflect on what the earth is doing, not the other way around. Clocks don't prove anything. They're just measuring time as we see it. It's just so ignorant. Um, the whole idea that stars don't change is because you're so far away from the stars what basically the further you are from something the more you have to move to see a change in it so if you're a long way from say the eiffel tower and it's way in the distance moving a couple of of meters will not change where that eiffel tower is to you it doesn't seem to move at all it's exactly the same place where it was but you have moved location so if the stars are in fact that amount of light years away then the Earth moving around the sun will not change where they appear to be. We can still measure it with instruments, but Iron Horse thinks the only instrument he has are his eyes, you know, that, that somehow ionise radiation and suck them in for some weird reason that relies on a demi-plane or some, you know, mumbo-jumbo that he's making up as he goes along. Um, the, the whole idea that you say, oh, well, it's exactly 24 hours. It's not exactly 24 hours. So you just refuted yourself. Congratulations. You've done it again. You've played yourself. Congratulations. Um, and and I, what I want to do, because we seem to be talking about all of your kind of stuff, what I want to do is get back to a couple of my questions on the flat earth. I've been more than patient. And, and so I want to talk about these <laughs> questions because I keep explaining parallax. You not understanding parallax doesn't change it. So what I want to ask is why does the light from the sun travel a far greater distance along the latitude than it does along the longitude? Why does it stop at the North Pole? Okay, well, that was a great amount of little dish gallop there. And again, it's one question. 
<laughs> no, no, it was a great amount of gish gallop. Well, don't run. <laughs> um, Can't answer. Uh, ask the question again because you've, you've just filled my head with so many ideas and now I've lost my space. Like, like Actually, honestly, you brought up most of them, Ross. So, uh, you know, you, you thank you for that. Okay, but, but I had a number so, of questions we, that I wanted so to ask at the start of this. One of them was, parallax. one of them was, you asked me a question, I'll repeat it. One of them was, how does the light from the sun travel a far greater distance along the latitude to reach, say, Australia and Africa but it stops at the North Pole when that is a vastly shorter distance. Why does it stop there? Okay, well, yeah. So you were also talking about parallax. And as we said, it, the, the parallax increases the more you spin on your axis. And so basically it negates itself because the spinning on its axis is the only speed that you imagine you see because you see the stars moving, whereas really... The linear speed at 65 times greater should be more represented in the parallax of the stars, especially as we are going around the sun. We're going this phenomenal distance every day, which would change the parallax because the stars themselves are supposed to be thousands of light years apart from one another. Now, when you talk about the light travelling distance, you're assuming that light is some sort of physical thing. It's not. Light does not travel. Light happens instantaneously. It's an instant thing. So when the sun ionizes the gases, it causes them to fluoresce. It's a, more of a chemical reaction than a physical one, and it creates then a reaction that our eyes are able to perceive. Now, without our eyes seeing light, you could almost say that light itself doesn't even exist. Light is a three-way combination. You've got your power source, the sun. You've got the reaction happening in the atmospheric gases, and then you've got the receiver. And so the, the time that takes between the reaction and the receiver, that is what we perceive as the speed of light. But the light itself has happened instantaneously. And it's the same as when we're looking at the stars. We only see the stars fluorescing through the atmosphere at the very instant that we see them fluorescing through the atmosphere. If we send a, a digital camera on a helium balloon up above what I call firmament B, and this will become famous in its own right eventually, it's the, the atmosphere where light exists, the 12 to 14 mile high mark where uh, light ceases to exist, you can't see stars. And that's this is a big deal. You know, the ancient Greeks... None of these people in the past had this technology where they could send a camera up to see what's actually happening above the atmosphere. For us to see the stars, we have to be down here on Earth looking up through the atmosphere, and that's when we see the light creating the effect through the atmosphere to create the sparkly lights we see as the stars. You send these balloons up and... You can try and do it in a plane. I don't think a plane can quite go above that height, whatever 12 to 14 miles is. So I can't convert everything to metric automatically in my head. But it's it's pretty high. You know, I think we're talking about 128,000 feet or something. Uh, no, in metres, I don't know. Anyway, the point is, once we get above the atmosphere, you do not see stars. And this is very, very profound for the flat Earth and for the heliocentric believers as well, is that where do the stars go? Why can you not see them unless you are seeing them through the atmosphere? 
all you see is the singular bright light of the sun, which doesn't have a shape by that stage. It's shapeless. It just has this crown of thorns, which is, as we've always known, this um, giver of life is to us. And we do see a tiny speck of the moon, and that's the only other light that we can see above that height, apart from the earth itself glowing. The atmosphere itself is what gives us light. It's, it's not something from outside in the universe that gives us light. It's the atmosphere. That you cannot underestimate the importance of the atmosphere in reality, stationary planar Earth. And reality. time. We could go over to Mark. Yeah, so Maybe in a few more rounds, we'll go into the Q&A. Sure. Heads up on that. Yeah, m- more than happy. Um, so I just want to point out that, that look look at this dish galloping. This is, this is what happens. So we went from parallax to light to digital cameras to the height of the Earth to um to to uh the atmosphere and how this is what he does and then when i answer all of his points he accuses me of dish galloping if you don't want me to go on about these points don't bring them up i'm more than happy to address them all which i will do thank you um so the parallax increases the more you spin the, the eiffel tower if you spin round in a circle and you're, you're kilometers away from the eiffel tower it doesn't move any faster it, it spin has nothing to do with parallax. If you move a meter and you spin really fast while doing it, the Eiffel Tower doesn't move any further or shorter. It's absolute nonsense from someone that doesn't understand anything. Light isn't a physical thing, according to Ross. I don't know what he thinks it is. Photons are physical, but I don't know what he thinks. Is it spiritual? Is, is it emotional? Is it an abstract concept of light? If it's not physical, what is it? Uh, this is ridiculous. Um, and he's like, lightning is an instant thing. That's been demonstrated incorrect again and again and again. Light does not travel instantaneously. We know that from fibre optic cables that bring you your internet that you're currently using, Ross. It's not an instant thing. There is latency, the latency of light to travel across the globe. That is nonsense. And everybody that uses the internet knows that. So well done for lying again. Um, Firmament Beam is going to be famous. Yeah, sure. I'll wait for your Nobel Prize, Ross. I'll celebrate your Nobel Prize on Firmament B. I think you're absolutely deluded. Um, he didn't address the question why the light stops at the North Pole. He just made more claims about firmament and stuff. I didn't hear him say anything about why the light stops at the North Pole. He didn't address it at all. Then said balloons go up and past the atmosphere and, and basically there's you can't see any stars. Yeah, that's because of the glare of the sun. It widens your pupils and you cannot see the dim lights. It, it's glare. If you filter that glare like they do with helmets or instruments or things like that, you can see the stars. It is that oppressing light of the sun that makes you can't see. And that brings up a good question where, where Ross has refuted himself again because he says light is dependent on the atmosphere. It ionised the atmosphere. We all heard him. But, but he says that when you go up in a balloon, the sun is shining. How? Where does the light come from if there's no atmosphere? So congratulations for refuting yourself yet again for the umpteenth time during this debate. But where does it come from? And again, I'll repeat my question that I asked. Why does the light stop at the North Pole, which you didn't address in the slightest, you just rambled on about ferment and balloons and cameras and whatever else you wanted to gish gallop about? Well, it's it's basically the thing that you're accusing me of. Conclusion, then we'll go to the Q and A. It's the things that you're accusing me of dish galloping, which are the answer. If you paid attention, if you understood how the nature of light works, and how the fact that we do have a firmament in the first place, and if the firmament 
Like, I don't know if it's domed or flat, but if we have to assume it probably is domed because that's just the nature, because the heat from beneath the earth is what's creating the temperature and stopping it from freezing altogether and putting the entire existence into a big block of ice. So the firmament itself, light exists once it hits gross physical matter. And so that gross physical matter, when we're looking up and seeing the sun, that is the sunlight that we are seeing in the firmament. But because there are no noble gases in between there and this lower firmament V area, that is why it is pitch black, because the sun has nothing to stimulate. It stimulates the noble gases beneath the firmament V, and that's what gives us daylight. And surrounding of that is the twilight. And so because the the firmament itself is slightly dome-shaped, not as severely as your head, but it's certainly dome-shaped in some manner or another, is that itself creates the bending of light, which then will create the dark spot, unlike the highlight in your head, it creates the dark spot around the North Pole. And as the sun itself gets higher or the angle of incidence hitting the firmament, that is why we get the 24-hour sunlight in the northern part of the, the inner part of our world because the light is hitting the dome at that angle. And as it gets further, either higher or further away, whichever way both of them work, it creates a bigger and bigger circle around us without having to change speeds, by the way, but it will spread the light more around the outside of the earth we live upon. So that answers your question, which you're struggling so much to understand. Once you understand the nature of light, and the ionisation of the atmosphere and the interaction with the dome, it makes sense. But, you know, because you, you are struggling so hard to not believe in it, to try and refute it, that's why you're having trouble understanding it in the first place, because you don't want to believe. You want to believe you live on a spinning space ball hurtling through, yeah, through space. It's ridiculous. And then since uh, we had Iron Horse start, if you'd like to have the final s speech, you could say, of three minutes, you can mark, otherwise we can go straight into Q&A. Yeah, so this is this is Iron Horse just throwing out terms and now he's sort of said, oh, it doesn't matter speed. And there has to be noble gases now. So see how it's how it's changed from, from air molecules to noble gases. I'm sure, you know, a, a unicorn will be involved in the next iteration that this guy comes up with. The ionization of the atmosphere through the dome now. Let's move the goalpost. Let's add something else. That, and don't, look, he has not demonstrated any of these things he's bringing up. I asked him to demonstrate the firmament. How can we know it's there? No answer. No, no clue. No, no concept of how to even check to see he's whether this, this silly thing that he's pulling out of nowhere is actually true. He just makes claims. I am presenting the observations we have, how they fit with the globe model, and, and how we know things are so. This is, this is what I am doing. Iron Horse is just throwing out words and terms and expecting everyone to believe it and somehow in his own head he's going to get a Nobel Prize for firmament B because apparently that's a thing even though he can't prove it can't point to it can't demonstrate it can't do anything except to throw these terms out conflate dodge basically not answer the question apparently light is instantaneous but it stops at the North Pole because the speed doesn't change 
Why, why would the speed change if it's instantaneous? Because Iron Horse is not rational. He's not reasonable. He's not consistent. He's refuted himself multiple times during this debate, and he cannot get a logical working model for the silly disc that he believes in. So you can go on thinking that you're on a flat earth, and sure, go for it. You can believe whatever you want. But at some point, at some point, it's time to put on your grown-up pants, join the rest of the adults at the table, and actually look at things logically and rationally without playing pretend like Iron Horses. We're going to jump into the Q&A. want to say, folks, as I mentioned, if you didn't hear it at the very start, a couple of housekeeping things. We have many more juicy debates coming up. So first, if you haven't hit that subscribe button, but also, as you can see at the bottom right of the screen, if you happen to have TikTok, I will pin it to the top of the chat. Right now, we are on a campaign to get a 1,000 followers on TikTok because then we'll be able to live stream these debates on TikTok, which will be huge in terms of us expanding this neutral platform. So we appreciate your support. If you happen to have a TikTok as well, that is pinned at the top of the chat. It's also in the description box if you are watching later or if you're watching via the podcast, or I should say listening. Want to remind you, if you're listening via the podcast or watching on YouTube, both of our guests are linked in the description. You can hear plenty more where that came from by clicking on both Iron Horses and Mark Reed's links below in the description box. This one first, coming in from two seconds as I reload this. Also want to mention, folks, we are expanding. Modern Day Debate has a Discord. It is you could say, generally speaking, Shane, Amanda, Hannah, others have worked really hard to make the Modern Day Debate Discord epic. So highly encourage you to check that Discord out. That's also linked in the description box. And am I forgetting anything? Okay, thanks for your patience, folks. We're going to jump right into it. If you didn't know, if it's your first time here, we read the super chats first, and then we go to the standard questions if we have the like the time, because sometimes we, we go a little bit late, so we don't always get to all the standard questions. So this one coming in first, Andreas Elda says, this time of year, as viewed from Australia, does the sun set slightly north or slightly south of due west? The sun does what it does and it creates the appearance of how we see it due to perspective because we are only seeing our horizon barely five kilometres away. Sorry to talk in miles before, three to four miles. It's five to six kilometres away, if you're lucky. Most of the time, you're not even seeing that far at all. So when you're seeing, you, you are, you're not even really seeing the sun where it is at all. I, I don't know if anybody's wants to have a look at my channel where I go into a lengthy, it takes an hour or more to explain the way we see the sun. It's very subjective. We are not seeing the sun where it is at all. So when you think you are looking in a specific direction, you're really not. Like if you move, the sun moves with you. So how can the sun actually be in a direction? How can you be looking in a direction? You know, we got a lot to learn when it comes to perspective. That's for you, Mark. Is that for me? Oh, yeah. Well, see, the the um, plane is moving um, in its own inertial frame of reference, 
the, the, it's still moving with the rotation of the Earth. It still has that momentum from the instant it takes off the ground. It adds to that momentum by accelerating, and that's what you feel. Um, the acceleration, you feel that acceleration. Then when it gets up to cruising speed, you don't feel acceleration anymore, nor do you feel the speed. It's just like you're standing in a room. Um, sure, you're aboard an airplane that's moving incredibly fast, but you're, it's just like you're standing in a room. Then when you go to land, yeah, the, both the airplane and the earth are still moving it's just that the the, the rotation of the, the plane has the rotation of the earth plus the momentum it's built up from going to cruising um altitude so yeah it, it, to, to all intents and purposes from the inertial plane of the the, the inertial frame of the airplane it's like the earth is still because it already has that momentum gotcha but what if it changes direction and flies the other direction has it still got that direction and it's actually going backwards even though it's going sure. that way against the spin, is it is it actually going backwards 500 miles an hour faster than it's actually going 500 yeah. miles forward because it changes direction? Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah, so, so when it changes direction, it's got the momentum of the way that the Earth is spinning and then it reduces that momentum by flying against it. But because the Earth is still travelling exactly the same velocity or the same vector, it's like it's basically going in the opposite direction relative to the inertial frame of the Earth. But, but if it stayed go. in the same direction and didn't turn around, yeah. it's going even faster. Gotcha. Sure. You've yeah, but, but, but if, if, if you, you're comparing it to the inertial frame of the Earth, it's basically the Earth is still spinning and it's going against that. So from the plane's inertial frame of reference, it is reference. moving against the Earth, and it makes perfect sense. So, so if somebody jumped out of the aeroplane, would the I think Earth we've got to stop the them? questions, or else we'll never get going. Because well, I've would, got to have would the, the last Earth word. Still right? spinning beneath the person that jumped from the plane, or would they continue going the speed of the plane plus the Earth and not land a thousand miles to the west in an hour's time? This last follow-up, I can give you an Iron Horse, yeah. and then. Mark's right that we got to go to the next one. So, so go ahead, a Mark. person that jumps from the plane still has the momentum from that plane. They won't suddenly right. like zip off away, and that's not what we see. They'll basically but, but, fall. Now they still have air resistance, as does the plane. So they will slow to not have that forward momentum. But if you know skydiving at all, you'll know they'll keep that forward momentum of the plane until uh -huh. that air resistance lowers and they just drop straight down. But all Thanks, of that's mate. very well observed. I'm glad I could hear from an expert. That's awesome. This one coming in from... <laughs> Come you two certainly have chemistry as and I don't said ask. Yeah. Don't ask then. Like why do you ask oh, no, that no, the answer from me? I, I'd love to know why why we No, you ask a question and then say, Oh, I'm yeah, it's it's just wow. <laughs> this Come on, one, Mark. This one from commercial sound and video says, Mark, five hundred miles on a globe requires a thirty mile drop. Do commercial airplanes dive a half mile per minute? at level cruise yes or no answer please and thanks uh yeah so i'm not i'm not going to answer yes because yeah. no, that's a loaded question so um yes they do drop over that distance because all they do is keep the altometer on level and level is per perpendicular to the center of mass of the earth so if they keep that line um straight they are following the curve of the earth so yes they do 
You got it. And this one coming in from, do appreciate your question. Dead Fishy says, valiant effort in education, Mark. Heart sign. Alan Dupree oh, says, Ross, how can we falsify flat earth? What do you mean by falsify? Like, it's, it's pretty obvious that when we look at any body of water that it is flat and level, and to assume then that body of water, just because it gets so far away into the distance that you can no longer see it, that it starts to begin magically bending and somehow still remaining above uh, land level, um, I think that falsifies it in, in its own right, is, is that you just need to use a little bit of simple logic and say water level is water level and uh, uh, all our physical land is above it. I, yeah. Yes. It, so it falsifies my means... mind that people can think water will be a huge bulge of thousands of miles high between continents. So okay, falsifying... so... Yeah, just falsify means that you basically come up with evidence to prove it wrong. Like, what evidence would prove the flat Earth wrong? What would we find if the flat Earth was wrong? Well, bulges of water would would probably prove flat Earth wrong. Yeah, big bulges, like thousands of miles high bulges between Asia and America. You know, if we could see a 17,000-mile high bulge of water, I'd start believing in the spinning space ball straight away. You got it. This one coming in from thanks Surgeon General for gifting those channel memberships. Folks, if you just got one of those channel memberships from Surgeon General, don't forget to use those based and red-pilled custom modern-day debate emojis so you can call your friends and chat soy boy using the emoji. This one coming in from, do appreciate it. Alan, oh, we got that one. Shane Cup says, so we can land a man on the moon, but we can't take a single real photograph of a satellite? They are all CGI. There's no excuse for that. NASA lies. Oh, they um, all have so, yeah, I think that question was for me, mate. Um, so we do have photographs of satellites, but what you're talking about is a, a photograph of the entire satellite, which we've got of them on ground. But the whole idea of a satellite is you're launching it into space. So why would you launch another satellite to take a photo of a satellite? It doesn't make any sense. What we do have, though, is real photographs taken from arms on like the ISS that have photographs of themselves, only partially, because as I said, we don't have the resources to launch a, a, a rocket to take a photograph of a satellite that we're launching into space. That is incredibly silly um, because it's just a waste. Why would we do that when we can take a photo from the satellite itself that has part of the satellite in it? Um, the, the, the whole idea of this is, is kind of silly. How do we launch satellites, Mark? Like, how, how do we get something to go 17,500 miles per hour, like the it's ISS, for example? Well, how does the rocket get to that speed and dock with it perfectly every single time when that's like about 10 times the rate of a speeding bullet? How, do, how does it do that? Maths. Maths. Right, yes. So, so when, we, when we have vectors in Maths. space, we've got to exactly calculate the rotations of the satellites, how fast that rocket is going. It's called a vector. Now, a vector, excuse me, can I finish, please? Just stuff well, your beard but, in your but, mouth again. Just, well, just shut up. How did it go so fast? 
Let's give Mark Ma- a chance Ma- to answer. Say a thing. Hold on, Iron Horse. Well, he doesn't want me to talk because he doesn't want to give an answer. He just he's afraid of answers. I don't know Maybe why. Stuff in your mouth. Horse, Maybe up your nose as well. Um, okay. So so what we calculate is a vector. It's the speed of an object is moving. Um, the the three dimensional space it is moving for, and we do need to correct that vector sometimes very very harshly with with thrusters and things. So we can oh, move at relative. I'm, I'm telling you how they're called thrusters. They alter the thrusters. the vector that 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 object is traveling on, so it can match speeds with the object orbiting the Earth. Because don't forget, a rocket launched from Earth has momentum of Earth's rotation. So it's not like it starts out and goes stationary for some reason. You know, your wild wacky. Flat right. Earth so, so it, it, it has to, yeah, it, it has to basically go up Hold and on. then That's match the velocity yeah. of the object, and then once it hits there, it is in orbit. It is going around the Earth with the Earth. So, so in actual fact, what you're saying is it takes off with the speed of the Earth at sixty-six thousand six hundred miles per hour, and then it slows down to seventeen thousand five hundred miles per hour. It's not actually accelerating or thrusting. It's actually slowing down, and that's how it does. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, basically, the the way that it works is that that it uses the Earth's rotation to alter speed. So basically, when you achieve an orbit, you're going at a relative speed to the Earth. Usually, satellites are on a geostationary orbit. They're basically moving the same rate that Earth is. So when that rocket goes up because of atmospheric conditions, it may slow a little. But when once it gets to orbit, we can then adjust it. And for slowing down, all slowing down is thrusting forwards. So you're going backwards, Ross. It's not yeah, but, like if you thrust against, excuse me, if you thrust against the vector that you are traveling in, you will get slower. You won't suddenly spin off in reverse. If you've got momentum behind you and you push in front, you'll slow down. I don't know why this yeah, is hard okay. to understand. That, that, that's fine, Mark. But, but the thing is, the question was, we're not talking about geostationary satellites. We're talking about the ISS going 17,500 miles per hour, which is much, much less than 66,600 miles per hour. And it's slowing down, but it also travels around the Earth every 90 minutes. So, yeah, it just doesn't make any fucking sense for me. I've got to give Mark the last word because the question was originally for him. And then I've got to go to the next question. Yeah, so this miles thing, how fast is the ISS moving? Um, yeah, so it's uh, 7.66 kilometers per second. Yeah, and so if the rotation of the Earth is such that um, it, 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 like we put into orbit, we can use the gravity of the Earth to assist in speeding up. Like, I don't understand how you, you, you're basically saying, well, there's no possible way they could alter their, their vector to match the ISS. Of course they do. It's their job. That's what they do. They're called thrusters. They're called Matt. rockets. I'm sorry the only flat earther that has ever tried to launch a rocket, and it's tragic, died in his own rocket thing. This he is, wasn't this a is flat the, earther. This man. is the high... He had a rocket that had flat earth written on it, Ross. Seriously? Yeah, yeah, he was looking for publicity. <laughs> it was uh, a steam. Well, maybe rocket. you are as well, Ross. That's a no true Scotsman. I don't know what I you're, you're talking about with that. So, yeah, if you could just be quiet while I finish and stop interjecting with stuff. Um, that That is what they well, do. They use thrusters. They use Hold gravity on, Iron Horse, assist come on. techniques. They use a number of techniques to match um, velocities of objects. And for that, they use math. The... Quick housekeeping things in particular. We have a poll in the chat. What is the Earth shaped as so far? Number one, 
And this is, again, this is just who happens to show up to the debate. This isn't asking which debater was more persuasive. It's just asking what people believe. So 51% globe so far. If you haven't voted in this poll, you can. 29% flat. A lot of flat earthers. What do we got? We've got like a live viewership of 546. So that's a pretty good, a lot of flat earth people. Then like a pear has 10%. That's in third place. And in fourth place is who cares? I'm a self-hating soy boy. This one coming in from, by the way, if you got a gifted membership from Surgeon General, some people aren't, uh, they're not looking at the live chat. Sometimes I know people just listen to Modern Day Debate as they're doing things. So if you didn't know it, Coffee Breath, Gamble, Victor, Brett, Admire, Manic Pandas, Fish Crow, Fam Roots, Logan Fisher, Gamble, and Kevin P., you all received a gifted membership from our dear friend Surgeon General. Thanks for that. This one coming in from... Elusive Viper says, Mark Reed, when discussing new stars, Ross seems to be referring to seasonal accelerate, uh, seasonal constellations as seen from the equator, which change yes. as the seasons do. Yeah, so that's different than the circumpolar stars, which I said in the southern hemisphere, which we're talking about specifically, they never um, set. And the northern circumpolar stars never set in the northern hemisphere. Um, seasonal stars, as Elusive Viper pointed out, are ones in the uh, near the equator that aren't the circumpolar stars for north or south, and they're seasonal. They they come and go. Um, it's just Ross doesn't seem to understand what I'm talking about, which is kind of hard. You it's hard it. to understand what you're talking about because you're speaking a whole bunch of out and nonsense. Because I can think logically, as I said with the simple example, is if you put two cameras onto a ball and pointed them towards the axis of rotation of each one, they would not keep making perfectly circular star trails around each one of them. And even if it was going around a massive centre, then each time they're going to be looking out somewhere different, which, you know, the sun is our giver of day and night. So we have to be going around the sun yearly, annually. So when we're on other sides of the sun looking 180 degrees complete opposite directions, we would not be seeing the same stars unless you were trying to argue that the entire universe goes around our sun. This one coming in from Ozian Talks says, Iron Horse, please explain the uh, difference. Don't I get the last word on that one? Yeah, sure. Sorry to sorry to no problem. Yeah, so so yeah, he, he still doesn't understand parallax. He still hasn't done that experiment himself to see if anything rotates. He's just got no idea. The question is, if you're on a flat stationary Earth, why do there seasonal stars at all? Like, why do they exist at all? Um, you because know, he's got no answer for that. And among tons of other things, thank you, Ross. The tons of other things, he just doesn't answer. He just keeps throwing out more claims in the hopes that it'll distract you, you from the, the fact question, that he hasn't Iron answered. Horse. And I'm trying to answer it, Mark. You asked me the question, and I said the reason we have the seasonal stars at all is because they are on the sidereal day. So the closer they are to the centre, the faster they will appear to move by moving that one degree per day until it's 365.25 rotations of the sun until they return back to the original position, whereas in the outer hemisphere where we exist, obviously they don't move nearly so fast. This one so, coming. Go yeah, on. I'll just get the last word. Sorry, James. He just keeps, you know, not giving well, the last word. So, 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 yeah, so, so, yeah, 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 ye
Um, so, so the whole point is he's basically saying that the inside of a circle rotates slower than the outside of it. Think about that. That, that for some no, reason, the inside of this, this pizza is going slower than the outside, which we know from physics is total hogwash. Um, I don't know what his model is. He seems confused himself, but there is no way that something on the inside of a circle is rotating slower than the outside. And we would should be able to still see those stars. If we can't see them on the outside why can we if we can see them all the time on the outside of his pizza why on towards the center can't we see them it, it makes no sense whatsoever this one coming in from ozzy and talk says ross please explain the difference between speed and acceleration do you feel speed or acceleration more why explain in terms of cars versus globe model okay well that's a pretty good question because if we're going to compare the, the globe and a car at the same time, it'd be similar to, say, when I was talking about riding a bicycle around a car. And as soon as the car starts moving, now when it's moving, say, it's going around a big racetrack, you know, we'll have to scale it right down because big numbers hurt the globe, unfortunately. But if we put it down to a, a, a scale model size and said the car is going around a, a racetrack, now if I riding a bike around that car, when I'm on the outside of that car compared to when I'm on the inside going backwards, I'm definitely going a much different speed from it. So if we did the same, looked at the same example and said then that the globe is spinning on itself and going around the centre, then the part of the globe closest to the centre is going to be going much slower than the part of the globe on the outside going with that direction. And that that difference in speed works out to be daily about a Mach 4 speed, which is the kind of speed that an average fighter pilot passes out at if he happens to reach that speed. So it's a, it's a great question, and it's another great way of debunking the ridiculousness of the globe model because we don't pass out at midnight every night just because we're going Mach 4 that way instead of negative Mac 2 that way, while the whole lot is going Mac 87 that way around the sun. This one. To be fair to the super chatter, he asked the difference between acceleration and speed, which you didn't answer. And pilots pass out from acceleration, not speed, by the way, just, just to let you know. But could you explain that for the person that spent their money on a super chat? Well, speed is actually acceleration. I mean, you can't have one without the other. Surely you understand that it's a change of speed, which is acceleration. So to try and deny speed and have acceleration at the same time, you must be oh, really... They're the really same mentally. thing, obviously. Yeah, yeah. They're, uh, they're totally the same thing. <laughs> This one coming in from... Do appreciate it. Brian W. says, Iron Horse, please explain how we in the north see different constellations than you do in the south. Why is it winter here and summer there? Yeah, well, that, that works down to being, again, our, our flat Earth model, as you can see, is that the sun goes around the equator every day, and when it gets higher, the sunlight hitting down upon the in parts of the equator get more direct sunlight, which creates more heat, and the indirect light towards the outer parts isn't creating as much heat. So we have winter while you have summer, and then when the sun comes down and it creates a bigger circle above us, then the outer parts get warmer from the direct light and the sunlight then slanting through the atmosphere to the northern parts gets colder. Uh, and the star question is basically they're too far away. 
it's like anything, you know, like the further you go from anything, I can't even see the middle of town from here where I'm sitting, but if I go to the middle of town, I can see the middle of town. It's the same with the stars. If you travel, you'll see different things. It's part of the excitement of travel. Like yeah, because Australia is closer to um, North America than South America, but South America and Australia can um, see the same stars. What, what's that, Mark? What was closer? Um, Australia is closer to North America than it is to South America, but we can't is see it? the same stars that North America, well, on your map it is, um, but we can't see the same, um, yeah, it's closer to North America than South America, yes, but we can see the same stars as South America. Why is that? Oh, yeah, well, as we've already described, the sky clock revolves around the entire Earth the whole time. So the stars are part of the sky clock, just as the sun and the moon are. Just as we see the sun at daytime, we see the stars at nighttime. And so the stars moving that little increment four minutes per day faster than the sun means at nighttime, which is completely different times from us in South America, we will see what we see because that's what's above us to be looked at. Do you got this one coming in from? Do you appreciate your question? Ozzy and talks with a double head, uh, you could say uh, yeah, a combo here. Huh? Go, Ozzy. You thought that was a good answer. Oh, that's that's precious. Your buddy Ozzy. I'm talking says, about Ozzy and giving two super oh, chats, supporting says, the channel. That's he tough. says, Ross, if light is instant, why are you roboting? We'll give you a chance to do that first. Why am I roboting? I think he means like. Sometimes if you get a Lagging. robot voice during the connection yeah. on Zoom. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's probably because because I'm not speaking at the speed of light, I guess. Yeah, sorry. I'll try and speak at the speed of light in future. Oh, I think he means like the connection in terms of it traveling from New Zealand to the U.S. Because that's where the stream is coming from is the U.S. He's in Australia. But yeah, there is a... There or, is sorry. Sort of that's right. Australia. That's okay. That's right. They're basically well, the one, one of these upside down continents, anyway. Yeah, it's it's just internet connection, you know. Like it, that that stuff is physical. Light itself is not physical. Something Mark struggles with. He likes to think it's physical and it's hitting him in the face, and that's why it's shining off these big bouncy, shiny beams off the top of his forehead. All right, this one coming from Ozzy and Dark. Uh, can I just uh, say something real quick? It's because... No, um, no, no. Yeah, 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 just, just real quick. So there's a Nullarbor hop, which is a latency of about 10 to 20 milliseconds. Then there's the Pacific hop over to America. And because light doesn't travel instantly, it still requires the speed of light. That's why you're probably going to get a 30 millisecond um, hop over the Pacific to America. And that's just the way... Undersea the cables. Thanks, mate. Undersea cables. Wait a minute! I just realized something. You guys are both. You guys are both from Australia, right? Yeah. Wow. Is it, are you? Have you guys like? How far are you from? How long of a drive is it? From... Opposite ends, mate. As far away from him as I can possibly get. <laughs> you... I'm coming to visit you next weekend. Mate. That's right. You guys can hang out. Play... You don't even know me. <laughs> it's time to play yeah, Xbox. Can I say hi? You guys Who? can have fun. Okay. This Lynn. one can be. So it's um, a... yeah. It's... <laughs> it must be really far. Is one of you on the east and one on the west? Yes. Yes. Really? I'm on the east. Whoa, mm -hmm. that is far. I'm on the east. Mark is probably down the bottom or something. You know? Yes. Yeah, 
Which, out of curiosity, because I just get a kick out of hearing, like, the general region people are from, like, are, are either of you near any major city that I'm, I've heard of? Yeah, I'm in Perth. Okay. Uh, Brisbane's closer to me. Okay. That's super interesting. So, this one coming in, like, did you, you guys go to school, like, elementary school together? Or anything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're <laughs> This one coming in from Brian W. I think we got this one. Yep, we saw that one. Um, Michael Michael Lyon says balls, and then just a bunch of laugh emojis. Thanks, Michael. The Lion of Judah. Thanks for your super. Uh, I think it was meant to be a super chat. If you had a question you meant to attach, let me know. Ozzy and Tox strikes again. Says Ross, what makes something a noble gas? Its chemical composition. Yeah, the, the molecular structure of the gases are quite well known, but. Generally speaking, we live in nitrogen and oxygen. They're, they're our main ones, but these trace gases are known to exist. And it's when we concentrate these noble gases, for example, neon, into a tube and stimulate it with electricity, we get neon lights. It's you know, the light spectrum of light bulbs. It's a very interesting study, actually, and it's the, the combination of different ones like argon and xenon and so forth that gives us different spectrums of light. This is what spectroscopy is all about. The one thing that Professor Dave thought he had, um, the, the cool dude, Flat Earth Dave, all hung up about is that spectroscopy requires different gases isolated. So when you isolate them into containers, that's when you'll see the difference in the fluorescence of them when they're electrostimulated. So noble gases, although they are less than 1% of our atmospheric gases, our atmosphere is really, really huge, and that 1% is still a really, really, really huge number of gases, and that's why daylight doesn't blind us. It's just gentle daylight. You got it. This one coming in from... Got that one. Thanks for that. Let's see. Abellus UA says, Iron Horse, please explain planetary, planetary transits and why do only Mercury and Venus transit the sun um I, I have a feeling that most people that believe the heliocentric model sense that all the planets are uh, going around the sun and so oh, when they say transit they must mean go between us and the sun and so it just indicates that they're actually closer and they're not nearly so far away as we believe in the first place and obviously if they were physical bodies and gravity existed then they would fall to the ground so they are light beings they're definitely not um something physical as as the heliocentric believers like to to preach in their church you got it this one coming in from do appreciate it cool lambo says explain why the mixture of gases at different elevations do not change but their gas pressures do well once again we're talking amount the physical volume of something I, I did actually explain that in saying the same sort of thing happens in water like at the surface of water you've got zero water pressure you go a little bit deeper you get you eventually reach one atmosphere or the equivalent of two atmospheres etc etc the more amount pressing down on you creates the pressure so of course on air we're at maximum pressure at surface and as we get higher and higher the pressure just decreases because there's less of it Pressing down on us. Very straightforward. One flag, red and white, says, red and white, says, Iron Horse, 
If I stand on the south coast of the UK and see a cloud a thousand miles away on the horizon, why, what can't I see, why can't I see Spain? What's in the way? Uh, well, first of all, I don't think you'll be seeing a cloud a thousand miles in the distance because convergence is a real known factor of the way we see. It's called perspective. You can see it in front of you right now, how the floor seems to ramp up in front of you. The ceiling appears to come down. Everything converges towards eye level. So when you're in the south of England and you're looking outwards, depending on your actual height will depend on how far your convergence point is, and that is where the clouds will start to converge. And so I'd be surprised if you're actually seeing them 30 or 40 miles away. And assuming you're able to get high enough to see where Spain is, you've also got the distance diminution factor, which makes the angular size of everything get smaller and smaller. Plus, then you've also got atmospheric obscurity, which means we can only see so far before the atmosphere starts blocking stuff anyway. So the combination of those three very ordinary everyday aspects of perspective are why you cannot see or why you do see as far as you do. Mark, you looked skeptical. Did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, um, you know, just basically calling the person in the audience a liar, but that's what these people do. Um, you also can't see it if you get like a, a telescope and look like magnify it all you want on a very clear day. You still can't see it. But yeah, you do see clouds a thousand miles away. Yeah, you see them in the atmosphere and you can see them on the weather charts that, that you know, sort of meteorologists provide. So you can see them that far away if they're in the air looking up but you can't see them looking along the ocean for some convenient reason for flat earth physics changes when it, you know, has to, has to support no, you flat earth. You absolutely cannot see a thousand miles away clouds. You absolutely cannot. It's just impossible. You got it. Just got this notification. Bunzai Master, thanks for following us on TikTok. As I mentioned, folks, our TikTok link is in the description box. We are shooting for a thousand as we'll be able to then live stream our debates there which will get us a ton of new exposure as we are determined to provide a neutral platform so that everybody can make their case on a level playing field at modern day debate this one coming in from do appreciate your question alternate cac says simulations of flat earth prove at a high point you could view anywhere on the flat earth using a telescope in reality you can't because of the curve iron horse yeah, again, they're just um, confusing the fact of convergence with curvature. Like the, the first thing you see with perspective is that everything beneath you ramps upwards. And so depending upon your viewing height, you will always have this convergence factor. And that is why the horizon is always going to be at eye level, because everything above that is converging down. And we can't see through the stuff beneath us. We can see through the air at a certain distance. But eventually you're going to reach to such a height that the horizon itself just becomes completely obscure in atmospheric gases and so forth and light and fog and mist and all that sort of stuff we can't see through. So, of course, you can't see forever. It's a silly thing to assume that you would be able to. Maybe with some infrared you can see a lot further, but you certainly won't see forever. You got it. Thank you very much for this question. Coming in from... Two seconds. 
Where did I put this? This was a standard question from earlier. GG said, Iron, do you have any scientific ex- experiment or published paper that can verify what you're saying? Thanks, James. Thank you, GG. Well, you know, I think a lot of this stuff we're still in the process of um, publishing. You know, like the, the Flat Earth Awakening has only been going on for probably a decade at the most, whereas we've been believing in the, the space ball well, the spherical Earth for 2,500 years. We haven't believed it was actually moving until about 500 years ago. And the fact that the, the people now have got enough intelligence to realise the nonsense of all of those things about the curvature of water and the spinning speeds and all that sort of stuff means we've had about a decade, so we're getting pretty close to coming up with scientific papers to prove where we stand on. But honestly... We're getting peer-reviewed right here, right now. This is peer review. And um, if anybody has better evidence that we are actually spinning and hurtling through space, and I'd, I'd love to see it. I mean, that's what Mark's here for. He hasn't provided a thing. Actually, the um, Flat Earth Society started in 1884, so it's been around for like over 200 years and hasn't produced squat. Yeah, but we don't see them as actually an authority. We see them as controlled opposition. So it's easier to present your own opposition before the opposition presents itself and then pretend that you are that opposition than it is to actually allow it to happen organically as it's happened in this last decade. In this last decade, we've produced a heck of a lot. Juicy, to say the least. Want to say, my dear friends, we appreciate all of you being here, whether you be Flat Earth, Globe Earth, you name it. One, one last question. Polarity said, convergence wouldn't be relevant with a telescope. Also, James, you look like an attractive version of Robbie Rotten. I appreciate that. I'm going to Google Robbie Rotten, but go ahead. Uh, wasn't that the, um, the the guy on that children's show in Canada? Um, oh. Didn't didn't he die? I think I think he, he died of cancer. He was, okay, he, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. This guy I've seen. Yeah. Him. Yeah. Okay. I thought. What was the was name of the show? Lazy Town was it Lazy, Lazy Town or something? Right, Lazy what did they say about small minds discuss people and great minds discuss ideas? Um, what was the idea again that he was asking about convergence using a telescope? And that, that all that a telescope is going to do, same as a zoom lens, is it's only going to magnify what is actually visible in front of the viewer. <laughs> so the only way that you can improve upon what is actually there is to get higher. And as we have discovered, as we get higher, we can see further. Whereas if it was actually curvature there in the first place, getting higher, you know, if we're looking at it from a ball, and we're going away from the centre of the ball. We're actually going backwards, further away from it. We're not going forwards and over the curve to see what's over it. So getting higher, you'd have to go phenomenally higher before you'd see even a tiny bit more. But the fact that we can just go a little bit higher and see a heck of a lot more and a little bit higher and see a heck of a lot more proves the Earth is flat, not curved. Actually, you can you can sort of see past convergence with a telescope. Anybody that's aimed binoculars down a road says you can see further. Then you know it's just this this claim is ridiculous. It's you're magnifying what's in the convergence point, absolutely, but you're not going to see further. You're going to see what's already there and able to be seen. You're just proving that angular size is a thing affected by our eyesight because we can only see so much with our physical eyes. If we magnify it, sure, we will see more. It doesn't. 
Again, that proves it's not curvature because if it was curvature, all you would see is the curve. You wouldn't see. Yeah, but you more. still can't see from like England to Spain. That was the whole point of that person's super chat. Like, you, no matter how enough. far you magnify, it never comes into sight because you're not high enough. Because convergence is a thing. But you're undoing convergence with magnification. That makes zero sense because you can you're see not. further if you magnify that image. But you never you see, see those objects you should be able to on flat Earth. That's the whole point. You can only see to a degree. The, the magnification isn't infinite. And the further things get, the smaller they appear, no matter how much you magnify. So the things in front are still going to appear bigger, so they're still going to obscure the things further because they will appear smaller, no matter how much you magnify it. The, the things in front are still going to get in the way. Not the curve. This one Not coming in from... Two seconds. I don't know if you guys can tell. I'm like so wiped out. Someone said in chat that I'm high. I'm not high, I promise. But I am really, I might as well be because I'm so tired for some reason. I think but, maybe Iron Horse is. I think that's possible. Iron Horse, are you high? I wish I was. <laughs> I believe it. This I told Iron Horse, I said clothing required for tonight's debate. As I think a lot of you. Uh, <laughs> yes, it was one of my demands. I demanded put on a clothes debate. <laughs> Allegedly, someone in the last debate saw more than they bargained for when you were in your hot tub debating. Polarity. Uh -huh. <laughs> we, we, uh, we put ourselves in the Twitch pool. Maybe you should wrap it with some firmament, mate. Maybe get some firmament wrapped around you. Polarity says, if telescopes don't affect convergence, then why claim ships at horizon after Zoom? That's what you guys claim brings ships back into view. So what was the first part of that again, James? They said ships on the horizon. If telescopes don't affect convergence, then why claim ships at the horizon after zoom? Then they say that's what you guys claim brings ships back into view. They do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I mean the zooms we have today are, are quite impressive and they can do some amazing things to bring things into view that the naked eye simply cannot see. And so it's only because of the confusion of what people used to see with the naked eye that assumed it was curvature in the first place. So the zoom actually proves it's not curvature, it is convergence. I want to get shirts made, you know, if someone wants to sponsor me to make shirts, I will have convergence, not curvature. That, I think that's the greatest saying ever. It is convergence, not curvature. This one coming in from, I think that's all we have. Let me just double check just to be sure. I don't want to miss any. But I want to say, my dear friends, thank you so much. I'm pretty wiped out. And we're going to let these guys go. It's been about two and a half hours. So if you have not already, Chip. folks... You can check out our guest links in the description box. Both Iron Horse and Mark Reed are linked in the description box below here on YouTube as well as at the podcast. So if you're listening via podcast, which is available via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Google, we're on every single podcast app. You can find us and you can find our guest links there at the Modern Day Debate podcast as well. I want to say huge um, James. Sorry to interrupt. Um, I'm going to head over to the Modern Day uh, Debate Discord after this. So, um, yeah, just going to mention that. If you want to join me over there, more than welcome to. I'm going to head over there. Yeah, they've um, conveniently muted me, by the way. So, as, as Mark would know, because he's one of the moderators there who muted me in the first place. Thanks, Mark. Such yeah, well, you did um, 
private message me an accusation and sort of insults and stuff. So we, uh, yeah, we'll he did violate the guidelines of the server. So you've got no one to blame for that. But yourself. yeah, rules. because you're a moderator, therefore you're no, no. All right, it's because of now. your your I'm language and stuff. Surgeon General just shared the link for the Discord in the live chat as well. I just pinned that, so I highly encourage you folks check out our Discord if you haven't already. Hopefully, hopefully you feel welcome there, and we hope you feel and welcome here. And absolutely don't enjoy the, the circle jerk. That's, All uh, right, that's enough of your, right, yeah. enough of your dirty talk, Iron Horse. Okay, enough yeah, of Yeah, I wonder why. Uh, we don't want to know any more about this. So we want to say, hope you feel welcome, whether you be Flat Earth, Globe Earth, you name it. We're glad that you are here. Thanks so much for being with us, and I'll be back in just a moment for a really brief post credit scene letting you know about upcoming debates and events as we are planning our in-person conference, DebateCon Part 3. Our debate conference is going to be in April. It's going to be huge, so stick around, and I'll tell you more details. Thanks very that. much for hosting, James. It was thanks, James. incredible My pleasure. Thank you, guys, both Iron Horse and Mark, and thanks, folks, for watching. I'll be right back in just a moment. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.